Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, have you been putting off that patch? Well, this week we'll tell you how an out-of-date Joomla install led to a massive breach. Plus, Microsoft and Google spar over patch disclosures, picking the right security questions, and then a great big batch of your questions, our answers, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on January 15th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, while well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine, over at scaleengine.com. My name is Chris, and joining us for 197 weeks is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan, I'm, I'm enjoying the Tetris uh, in the background, kind of changing yeah. shape since we last saw you. I like the idea of you kind of getting off air and just kind of playing with it a little bit. Yep. <laughs> like, all right, well, I got some time to kill now. I'm just going to play with my Tetris. Uh, <laughs> I need more pieces. <laughs> yeah, you do. You have to buy a whole other set, though. That's the problem. Very expensive. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I looked into it because I got one for Ange. <laughs> uh, well, so we've got a kind of an interesting show today. A lot of stuff to cover. I'm surprisingly looking forward to the roundup as well because there's some big items I really want to discuss with folks. But mm -hmm. this first one I found particularly interesting because Angela and I were just having a conversation about how your card is pretty insecure in the States when you're using it in person. I never thought about, like, parking places but it makes a lot of sense so is this where we start today alan uh kind of yes so uh it. back in december krebs had uh, posted on his blog that he thought that uh these two particular uh, parking lot places uh park and fly and mm. one stop parking mm. uh had been breached because he saw credit card numbers uh go up for sale on one of the underground sites claiming to have been from those two sites gotcha uh and so he says, uh, last year, Krebs on Security wrote that uh, two huge swaths of credit card numbers uh, put up for sale on the Cybercrime Underground forum uh, had likely been stolen from Park and Fly and OneStopParking.com. Mm. Uh, competing airport parking services that let customers reserve spots in advance of travel via internet. So uh, unlike you know most parking places where you walk up and put your card in the machine, in these ones you can go on the website and reserve a parking spot before you get there uh, so that you know there will be a good one or whatever. Because uh, nothing worse than getting there in the parking lot's full or whatever. Yeah, no kidding, right? Um, uh, so this week, both companies have confirmed that they were indeed uh, suffering from data breaches. Hmm. So when contacted by Krebs on December 15th, mm -hmm. uh, Park and Fly said that it was uh, recently engaged multiple security firms to investigate the breach claims. Uh, had not found any proof uh, of an intrusion at that point. Okay. Um, Interesting is, why did they hire multiple firms? Did the first one not do a good job? Or, uh, or did they need a second opinion for some reason? Yeah, but uh, just with forensic type stuff, it's like, well, I guess, you know, you want to duplicate the hard drive, and I guess you can make two copies then and see what the independent investigations come up with yeah. uh, data-wise. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you have the it, money to burn. Yeah, but it seems more like they might have tried to cheap out and didn't get enough results and had to pick a better place. Than Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, Could very so, well be. Uh, in a statement released on Tuesday, so that was two days ago, uh, the company acknowledged that its site was hacked and was leaking credit card data, but stopped short of saying how long the breach persisted or how many customers were actually affected. The other site, OneStopParking.com, was reached by a phone, uh, I think, Wednesday morning, hmm. and the site's manager uh, said the company recently determined the hackers had broken into its system via a vulnerability in Joomla, which is the thing, the CMS they used to build the site. Yeah. Uh, it's the 
downside of that being that the patch for the vulnerability had been out since September, and one-stop parking, uh, the com- um, unfortunately for one-stop parking and its customers, the company had put off applying the Joomla update because it broke portions of their site. Oh, jeez. How common is that? Super you know, common. You grab a CMS like Drupal or Joomla, you make a couple of changes mm-hmm. to make it work how you want. Mm-hmm. You add something. Security update, mm-hmm. and oh, no, it doesn't apply cleanly, and you know, it either undoes our patches or we don't get their patches or... It changes some functionality we depend on, and now mm-hmm. I mean this is this is one of the driving reasons where I've, you know, seriously be considering converting the Jupyter Broadcasting website to a much simpler, more static file-based system because, you know, I, I realized There's fewer moving parts that yeah. need patching. I just don't like thinking about the security implica- implications of it, and I don't really need a lot of those features. I need some of them, but uh, some of the yep. you know ba- text-based systems are coming along quite nicely just because of this reason. Yep. Uh, so then Krebs goes on, unlike uh, card data that's stolen from uh, you know, Main Street retailers like Target and so on, uh, where they actually infected the card reader and got the magnetic read of your card or uh, using you know, a skimmer or a card reader, um, uh, with those ones, they have all the magnetic data, so they can just program that onto a new piece of plastic, oh, right? Like a, stole, a, wow. a bought gift card or whatever. Yeah. Um, and they use it to buy stolen goods in a physical store, uh, which is honestly easier to get away with uh mm-hmm. you know there's some security footage and you actually have to be at the place mm-hmm. but you know uh the systems there are primitive to catch it right uh, uh you know once you make it out the door with the tv you can turn around and sell that on the black market or whatever and or on craigslist for or cash whatever, or whatever and and you get cash and mm-hmm. there's not really a paper trail versus when you buy something with a stolen credit card it has to be shipped somewhere yeah and then you have to get it. Well, and it seems uh, like a lot of the more modern pro- transaction processing systems online also check for things like that too. Like I've had, I've had uh, recently a problem, and I was declined online, saying the card was was uh, discontinued. And you know, it just it seems like that stuff gets catched better when you're shopping online. Not to mention, there's an IP address. There's well, yeah, like there's you said, the a lot address more data to go from. Yeah, um, it didn't actually cover it this week, but uh, Stripe, one of the bigger mm-hmm. uh, new yeah. like Web 2.0 credit card processing companies that Scale Engine uses just announced their new uh, machine learning based uh, fraud detection system. Uh, machine learning fraud detection system. Wow. Yeah. Uh, because when you're doing stuff online and with APIs and so on, it's much easier to, you have a lot more data to work with. Mm-hmm. Right? When somebody walked into a store, you know where the store is maybe and that's about it. Whereas online, it's like, well, here's the IP address and the browser and a bunch of other stuff and maybe and, even any cookies know. they could detect or anything like yeah, that. And, to- well, just also like the a lot more detail about what it is they're buying. Yeah, well, sure. Right? What kind of store is this? Right? What Target, well, they could be buying anything. Yeah, they can even uh, technically do behavioral analysis like Google's doing with that new capture where they kind of just watch your mouse cursor and how you interact with the browser to determine if you're a legitimate person or not. Yeah, and a bunch of stuff. Anyway, uh, so unlike when they steal cards from uh, Target, they can't use these stolen numbers uh, just walking into a store. Uh, cards stolen from online transactions can only be used uh, to do fraudulent online purchases. However, most uh, online credit card sh- uh, stores that sell stolen credit cards mm. have both types. Right, The first one is dumps. Right, That's credit card uh, with the actual swipe data, so you can program it on a new card. Or uh, then they have CVVs, which is the credit card data uh, that you can just use online. The reason it's called CVV is that a CVV is what they call that three-digit or four-digit number on the back of the yeah, card yep. that you only get asked for by some sites. Mm-hmm. Um, the point of that really is that when you're, say, uh, park and fly or one-stop shopping, you're not supposed to store that number in your database. 
You can store the credit card number because you might need that or whatever, but you're not supposed to store the CVV so that if your credit card database gets stolen, the guys with the stolen credit cards don't have that number and then they can't enter the right one uh, when they go to use it online later. The problem is that, that most people don't seem to actually follow the PCI DSS and not store the CVV. And so the stolen credit cards can be used online instead of not. And they end up in all these databases with horrible protection. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, if we could just get people not to write down the CVV values in the database, then, you know, as long as the store bothered to check, it would be fine, right? Like, most online purchases you make now, like even the pizza place, checks the CVV number. Mm -hmm. I think one of the only places that doesn't is Amazon because they've decided that um, their fraud detection is good enough and that uh, lowering that um, barrier to people buying stuff is, is to their benefit. Yeah, you know, They make more sales because people... Right. I think almost everybody knows how to find the number on the back of a card yeah. now. But back a couple of years ago, it yeah. wasn't as easy. Well, and then they don't have to store it because Amazon likes to do the one-click purchase, right? So that right. way... Well, generally, the idea with the CVV is that um, you don't store it. Yeah. Uh, even if you're doing somebody signing up for yeah. like a monthly right. recurring thing, you don't need it every time. Oh, just the first just time. Just use it the first time. Yeah, that makes uh, sense. And it, it verifies, you know, if somebody paid you the first month, then you're pretty sure that the second month's not going to be fraud when yeah. the first month wasn't. Right? Yeah, they could have totally, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I think you're right. I think nowadays, if they were to implement the system today, they probably would do something like a one-time enter it thing, potentially. Right. Well, because that's that's how you know. I'm curious to know what kind of fraud detection. I'm sure that I'm sure Amazon is, is probably constantly evolving, but I'd be curious yeah. to know just in retrospect of them of Stripe using machine learning. Is Amazon yeah, doing well, something uh, else like that that maybe just hasn't been labeled machine learning because it's not you know wasn't called that back then? Yeah. Well, the interesting one with Stripe is that they're kind of crowdsourcing this stuff as well. So. If you do end up with a chart, if you're a Stripe customer uh, who's like using Stripe to process transactions, if yeah. you do end up with fraud, you can go in and uh, put in data about the fraud so they can figure out, all right, ah, here's give why we data didn't points. catch that transaction. Yeah, that's a great also, idea. When it denies one that it shouldn't have, you go in and you put in data and it's like, okay, this is where our false positive came from. So there is a way for users to input helpful yes. information. Uh, I think the, the biggest thing is that if their machine learning uh, blocks the transaction, mm -hmm. you can go in to the website or yeah. via the API and force it to allow it anyway. Uh, whereas PayPal's doesn't. If you turn it on, yeah, that's huge. They, they deny the transaction and you can't force it to go through even if you're 100% sure it's correct. I, I, that, is, that is a huge, that is a huge deal. Stripe does things properly. Yeah. Uh, and we, we love them. Yeah, that is. Uh, I mean, I just recently had to deal with some fraud stuff and... Uh, that is that is that is that, that almost sounds impossible that a company would do that. That's incredible. Well, it, mostly it's yeah. It's just nice that they actually don't assume the user doesn't know what they're doing. Right. Which and is also probably that true. Exposed it by their API rather yeah. than just yeah. only on their website. Yeah. And their API is so good. So that's yeah. Just wow. love it. Very interesting. Stripe is great. Mm. Uh, and it, anyway, uh, the last point Krebs had was that. Uh, the disclosure timeline for both of these companies between mm. when the breach happened and when they notified their customers uh, so far has been consistent with what uh, President Obama has been trying to go for this week with the 30-day window uh, requiring com companies to notify customers about a breach within 30 days of discovering that the information was hacked. Right, right. Uh, and so both of these companies have done that basically voluntarily. And uh, they're also and handing out free credit monitoring voluntarily. <laughs> Uh, and then lastly, I just had a, a great image I saw off Krebs's uh, Twitter account <laughs> where uh, you can see that oh my gosh. Has, uh, you know, Lizard Squad has uh, liked to make fun of Krebs. Uh, on their forums, they have 
like pictures of him with big bug eyes and, and so on and making fun of him. Uh, but if you see this picture, you can see Krebs is logged into their oh, database. That's and hilarious. Around with it. That, uh, wow, part, what a comeback. What, what he found is that if you sign up for Lizard Squad's uh, denial of service, service where they will attack people for you for money. Yes. That's if right. you're an administrator, your password gets hashed. If you're a regular user, your password is stored in plain text. Those, those, oh my gosh. You think they do that as like a, as like an intentional? I imagine the code uh, uh, always just did plain text and yeah. they used existing hashes or whatever for the admin accounts. But it's, that's pretty sad. Yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And Q5Sys is pointing out that he's seen some uh, credit card monitoring services where if you take it, you also are signing not to sue the company that uh, breached your, or leaked your information, which is. Uh, yeah, that's usually the case. I think it's like, yeah. uh, you know, when you get the the breach notification, oh, sorry, we're Target. We got your credit card got stolen because of us. Uh, here, we'll give you free credit monitoring, fine print, but you're agreeing not to sue us if you take it. Yeah, I would rather just sign up. If you're interested in that, go do your own research. Yeah, and, uh, you know, pick the service yourself mm-hmm. and probably not Experian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Krebs and, has a primer in this article that you have linked about credit card monitoring services. Yes, because uh, a lot of them are pretty junk. Yeah. And they don't provide you any guarantee. Right. They're like, oh, we, we will try to tell you if we notice something, but if we don't, you know, there's no culpability on our part or anything. Man, I love this screenshot of their PHP My Admin database. This is so good. <laughs> that's my that's my favorite thing right there. I think it's like owned. Yeah, like the ultimate comeback. Uh, that's that's incredible. Uh, all right, Alan. Any other uh, thoughts on that story? Uh, no. <clears throat> Okay, well then, uh, why don't we take a moment right here and talk about DigitalOcean. Head over to DigitalOcean.com. And something pretty exciting is in the works over at DigitalOcean. I'm kind of stoked about it. Uh, they've announced free BSD support on DigitalOcean, which is kind of exciting. Big news yesterday. Yeah. It's like, uh, on top of, uh, I got the emails from DigitalOcean. Uh, yeah, right. Because, yep. uh, they had this uh, user feedback thing where people can request features. Yeah, and it yeah. was the most requested feature with like, 3,600 votes or something like the that. The people spoke, Alan. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, they had hoped to have it online by February, and they uh, were actually a couple days early, so that was great. Yeah. And uh, it was just nice to see the whole FreeBSD community, uh, you know, a bunch of people talking about it, and uh, I helped to get it on the front page of the FreeBSD website. Oh, that's nice. That. Uh, but the other nice thing is that they had uh, obviously been working on this uh, already, so they have a bunch of tutorials already ready to go, yeah. including uh, a nice basic primer of like, oh, I've only ever used Linux before. What is What's this the difference? stuff like? Yeah. Uh, and it's like a six-part primer that comes through all the different stuff you might need to know. And they also uh, have a post about how they made this happen in the first place. The technical foundation yes. they laid and all the focus on working on it. It's really a great post. They're yes, really serious the, about uh, this. They, they came up with their custom art for it. Yeah. Uh, and it's Beastie's Shoes. Yeah. Uh, which is just awesome. Did you see they also posted a Vine video that was of Beastie running yeah. around? That was good. I did not see that. Yeah. I'll have to find yeah, so uh, DigitalOcean, I mean, just talk about getting better all the time, and now with uh, free BSD support, which, you know, we're fans of here on the TechSnap show. Yeah. So what is DigitalOcean? You're not familiar? It's simple cloud hosting dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You can get started in less than a minute. Pricing plans start at only $5 a month. You can get a free BSD server you got root access to up in the cloud for $5 a month, 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And we've got a brand new promo code, which will get you a $10 credit. So you can try out that $5 free BSD rig or any of their rigs for two months, no credit card for absolutely free. Snap Ocean, brand new promo code, Snap Ocean. 
It's going to last for all of 2015, so use it wisely. You apply it to your accounts, you get the $10 credit, then go spin up your droplet. Snap Ocean, one word, lowercase. Really, though, one of the things I love about DigitalOcean is they have some fantastic data centers for you to choose from. They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. They're gorgeous. They're well-built. But it really, really, beyond all of that, beyond the performance, beyond the features, the amazing community, the tutorials that they're always ramping up, the great blog posts, They've got this interface that you can use to manage all of it. DigitalOcean's dashboard is incredible. It's simple. Yes. It's intuitive. And I, was my, I had my first exposure to it yesterday. Oh, you did? FreeBSD instance. Yeah. Were you impressed? Yeah. It's, it's really good. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And, and the great thing about it is for you, Alan, like me, I don't ever take advantage of it other than use other people's apps, but I'm told that the API is really fantastic. Like they had an iteration of one, which was good and people were really impressed and they have like two or three iterations afterwards. And people are like, it's amazing. And you can use that to extend their interface for your own systems, your own scripts, your management infrastructure, your own applications. And don't forget, if you got some knowledge you want to throw down on the community, they'll pay up to $200 for you to write a tutorial. And something tells me they could use a lot of free BSD tutorials. So you could get paid $200 by DigitalOcean, and they have editors that will work with you. DigitalOcean.com. SnapOcean, one word, all lowercase, SnapOcean. They'll get you a $10 credit. You try out that new free BSD setup. Maybe play with some Nginx. Uh, check it out. I think uh, maybe it'd be a good opportunity for someone to play with some ZFS as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, love it. Congrats to DigitalOcean and good work on all the all the hard yes, work getting that and, done. Uh, you know, uh, they posted on the previous mailing list uh, kind of late in the day after everybody was already talking about it. Uh, but it was uh, you know also nice to see the previous community be like, hey, if you guys need any help with anything, you know, just let yeah, us know. That is really cool. DigitalOcean.com. Snap. You don't have to do it all by yourself. No. Uh, and I think those tutorials are going to start filling out really soon too to make it even easier. Yep. I, I mean, they just they crank them out all the time. Community does. Okay, so uh, we have another Krebs story, right? Or no? Is that our no? Our next story is oh, that's right. I've been looking forward to talking about this since the pre-show. Yes, Krebs this just big has extra coverage. Yeah, this big tiff between Microsoft and Google and this emergency patch and stuff. So, all right, now, what, what's going on between this? This is like the story yes. of the week for me. Uh, so Microsoft's pushed uh, emergency patches uh, for Windows mm-hmm. because yes, um, and Adobe has some patches as well, uh, but the big uh, news item with this particular one is that the biggest patch in this batch from Microsoft uh, is a, a drama-laden update to fix a vulnerability in Windows 8.1. Drama-laden. Uh, Love it. Yes. Uh, Google researchers discovered uh, this vulnerability uh, over 90 days ago and then uh, they reported it to Microsoft and Microsoft started working on their patch or whatever but it has now been more than 90 days since Google reported it to Microsoft. So mm. under their disclosure policy, they released it publicly two days ago. They went public before yeah. before Patch Tuesday. And Microsoft had asked them to wait too, didn't they? Uh, well, I'm, yes, I'm sure they did. Mm-hmm. But uh, I guess Google's argument was, well, you should have done it last Patch Tuesday then. Because we, we told you when we gave you the details that 90 days and we announced. That's the rule. Google doesn't have any skin in this game, right? I mean, it's not like they're trying to make Microsoft look bad because they're a competing platform vendor or anything, you think? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, it does seem like there could be some some corporate, you know, like, you know what? We'll give you the two days you need. Because it really came out, it came down like they disclosed yeah, like well, two, two days, days before is, Patch Tuesday or something. Yeah. Uh, well, in the end, does the two days make a difference either way? And maybe point? not. And then they get right. to stick to their policy, I suppose. Right. Uh, but really, it, it, the bigger question is, is why does Google have to come up with this policy? And that is, you know, the one that kind of yeah. brings up the question to the fore is mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, uh, the result, uh, the reason why Google and uh, the other 
news item from the other day is that uh, Yahoo announced a similar policy of disclosing all bugs uh, after 90 days as well. Um, and it seems that the reason why uh, researchers and like I think even I don't know if HP has changed their policy yet, but they're with their uh, zero day discovery zero day initiative. Mm. I imagine it'll uh, come up with something similar as well soon. And the reason that all the researchers are coming up with these 90-day hard limits is because the vendors are taking far too long to resolve the bugs, right? You tell Microsoft about a bug, and then they're like, you know, six months later, it's like, oh, we're almost done fixing that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know, at some point, I have a responsibility to disclose this to the users to tell them, hey, you're not being protected, do you right. think at all, do you remember that during the Snowden leaks it came out that also Microsoft was preemptively providing the U.S. government with uh, zero days before they were patched? Do you think maybe right. that... Right, and uh, exactly. It's that kind of thing where it's, you know, Microsoft doesn't necessarily feel that they need to release a patch until there's proof that somebody is actively exploiting it out in the world uh, where, you know, if if it's the government that's exploiting it, then they're not go they're going to sit on it if, if they can and so on. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, that seems like a really bad policy. Yeah, and I think that's maybe part of the reason why Google and Yahoo and that's what others I was feel that they have to have this 90-day policy, right? Yeah. So the researchers kind of are left to straddle the line between responsible disclosure, which is where you tell the vendor and then don't announce it until after they have a patch out, versus full disclosure, which is what some researchers do. Is as soon as they find it, they announce all the details, and that forces the vendor to go as quickly as possible because the details are in the open. Uh, and so this is kind of a, a hybrid, right? Because... In the end, you know, you give the vendor a reasonable amount of time. 90 days seems like more than enough time to write a patch. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, at, after that 90 days, it's not really responsible disclosure anymore. It's becoming irresponsible of Google not to notify the public that it doesn't appear that the vendor is actually taking this vulnerability seriously and that getting would, a patch out there. That would be my argument. I mean, I think some, like Tubbs in the chat room right now is making the argument that even 90 days is too long, which, you know, you have to find a practical middle ground there. But I th Right, so and, and, you know, the, the 90 days leaves enough room for Microsoft to get in next patch Tuesday instead of doing an out-of-band patch and for, you know, enough testing to be done before it gets released. But more than 90 days seems like asking too much, honestly. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was an interesting tiff back and forth to watch him kind of have it in public, too. Yeah, and uh, so uh, Microsoft has their side of it up on the strongly worded blog post. <laughs> uh, a call for better coordinated vulnerability disclosure. Oh. Uh, chiding Google for what it called a gotcha policy that left Microsoft users in a lurch. Oh. I'm pretty sure it was Microsoft who left the Microsoft users in a lurch. Yeah. Oh, the fight is on. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft also fixed a bunch of other vulnerabilities. Uh, one of them was a uh, Telnet service could allow remote code execution. Uh, some people still use Telnet uh, or have the Telnet server enabled on uh, Windows Server. And this affects all versions of Windows Server going back to 2003. Uh, so, you know, if you have uh, Server 2003, uh, Windows Vista, Server 2008, Windows 7, Server 2008 R2, Windows 8, Windows 8.1, uh, Server 2012 and 2012 R2, and Server Core, you definitely <laughs> need to patch. Oh, it hurts. And it's all are, have an aggregated severity rating of critical. Really? Yeah. Now, by default, Telnet is installed but not enabled on Server. <laughs> uh, on Vista and 7 and so on, Telnet is not installed by default. Uh, customers have to manually enable the service. So less of a big deal for uh, your regular desktop user, but it's interesting. I mean, uh, 
when I think of uh, when I think of this kind of problem, uh, and I think of Oracle too. Like Microsoft, we're giving a hard time here, but let's be honest: the people that are really slow to respond is like folks like Oracle, where they'll just sit on it forever. Yeah, like Oracle, they they what they only have like three or four patch windows of a year yeah. instead of once a month. So this that kind of stuff, or like. You know, I think it'd be really interesting to see Apple tested in this way. Like, out of all of the companies, I mean, Microsoft has kind of created a patch machine. Like, they are, you know, really good about churning that stuff out on a regular basis. They must have a pretty good pipeline. I don't know that there's ever been a patch Tuesday without a patch. I think one, actually. Just one. Just one. And it was like for a good, it was like Christmas or something. It was like a really good reason. It was like not bogus. Uh, And I, I look at that and I think, how is that pressure? So, out of all the companies, I mean, Microsoft is big and slow but they at least have a well-oiled machine to handle this, right? Oracle and Apple, I don't get that impression from, and other vendors too, but those are just two big ones that jump out of me. uh, It kind of comes down to into the roundup, but uh, the bigger story is the the vendors that don't have a process at all, like Panasonic, who you don't even think of being a software vendor, but they make some SCADA systems used to control like business logic or or, uh, factories or whatever. And they're, oh, look, we actually, turns out we're not encrypting some data that we should be. Uh, and, uh, oh, we'll have to do a patch. You know? I, uh, I'm glad I'm not in, in this part of it anymore. Yeah. Really. But, yeah, and, and you know, we've seen uh, varying things with, you know, open SSL patches and it's like, you know, they're kind of not always doing the responsible disclosure thing when open uh, mm, open point. SSL knew about some of these vulnerabilities back in October, and they released it all in January on January eighth, was it seventh or eighth? Uh, but you know they didn't give the uh, the distros a heads up in time to have their patches ready to be released at the same time as the advisory. And it's like, well, if you've known about some of these. From since October, you uh, could have given people a heads up. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. <laughs> Although it looks like, you know, uh, they were sitting on all those and then they had the one vulnerability that came in the day they did the release or the day before they did the release. And it was that one that pushed them to go. And it's like, well, you couldn't have given people three days or something? <laughs> That's what I was wondering. Especially since not one of those vulnerabilities was necessarily marked as critical. So if it was just a maintenance type update of here's a bunch of small security vulnerabilities sure. we're fixing, sure. then there's definitely no reason not to have done uh, an or- a more organized release of that. Alan? Speaking of disorganized, yes. uh, the last section of our thing is uh, obviously Adobe has a new patch for Flash, which happens all yes. the time. Yes. Uh, but Krebs uh, is quick to point out that you could... Uh, be in a different situation than you think you are. In particular, oh. Windows users who browse the web using anything other than Internet Explorer may need to uh, apply the patch twice. What? Once oh, to right. Internet Explorer and then again for their alternative browser like Firefox and Opera, Chrome, or whatever. Uh, Microsoft has switched IE to bundling Flash kind of like Chrome does. But because of that, it does it separately. So if you, are, if you normally use Firefox, you go and, you go to, uh, and update the Flash in your Firefox, your Internet Explorer is still using the old Flash. And until you update it, uh, anything that uses the embedded browser or, you know, uh, especially we've seen those attacks via Office Docs that use the embedded Internet Explorer stuff, uh, that could could uh, use the old Flash that's still vulnerable. So you have to make sure you update it. Worse, if you're in the situation where you use Chrome and Firefox on your machine 
then you actually have to make sure all three get updated, right? Because you have Chrome and Firefox plus it's Windows, so you can't not have Internet Explorer. And all three will update their flashes separately. That is uh, also, also I think... have the same problem with Java. Uh, for example, I have 64-bit Java for running a desktop application, but also 32-bit Java for running it in my browser. So I actually have to update my Java twice every time. I also think it's same similar on uh, the Mac. Yep. I think. I imagine so. Uh, and it's kind of the downside of the bundling. Uh, and he also notes that you know if you're running Chrome, don't just assume you have the latest Flash all the time because uh, especially if you're a certain type of user, you don't necessarily close every one of your browsers to cause it to restart enough to actually uh, update the Flash. Sure. So you have to go into the About tab, make sure uh, using this Flash, and if not, force it to update, uh, which may require restarting the browser. Yeah, it's <laughs> so complicated for end users. I just don't know how we expect them to manage it. And I know, exactly. I know, Linux and package management is a solution. But that's one of the things I, you know, when you say like you have you have to update Flash twice and Java twice, I just think to myself like I I can't even fathom having to worry about that. That seems so archaic. But it's these like you know yes, you look at, but at the same time you can run into the problem on on Linux is like oh so. I want to update this application, which requires a newer version of this library. Right. Oh, yeah. This other oh, yeah. application oh, yeah. Sure. that hasn't been updated yes, yet doesn't require this newer version yeah. or requires the older version to keep working and then yeah. exploding. Uh, and then you see guys like Google try to take, or folks like Google try to take this on themselves by bundling Flash into Chrome and maintaining that separately. All you end up with is three copies of Flash instead right. of one. You know what I do is uh, I make, I download, I use Chrome for whenever I need Flash. And when I don't need Flash, I use a different browser. And uh, that way I don't have to put Flash on the system. And it just works fine for me. It's like, I don't really don't... Now, on my production machines out here in the studio, I have Flash on all the things. Because I don't know what I'm pulling up during a show that might need Flash. Well, the nice but, thing is uh, Firefox now uh, forces you to click to activate Flash if your Flash is out of date. That is nice. You know, the other thing I noticed, though, is when I stopped using Flash more, I, I, more frequently, my battery life went up by a pretty uh, noticeable yeah. amount. It, it, you I think know, it's because CPU. no, you know what I think it is. Is Flash uses the GPU. Ah, uh, there's that. Yeah, uh, and it might be accelerating every ad on yeah. every page. I think that's exactly what it is. I think that because that's a, really I wasn't watching a ton of video, but I would go to you know I'd be reading news sites and they all have Flash ads on them like crazy. Yeah. Well, uh, the worst ones are like the full screen. Yeah. Those ones you aren't even usually Flash actually. But no, 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 I just hate going to any um, mainstream media site where you get a. ZDNet does that all the time when you're reading like the All About Microsoft blog. Yeah, but this is like uh, like the New York Times. I mean, lots of any any big publication basically, and you get a full page car ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alan, should we uh, take a moment and talk about IX Systems? Are you ready, yes. sir? All right, ixsystems.com/slash/techsnaps, where you go to support the TechSnap program, but also go check out all of the amazing rigs that IX Systems builds, powered by those incredible Intel Xeon processors. White mm -hmm. glove service, literally end to end. Burn-in testing, that way you don't waste your time. And truly, the experts that fundamentally know the software stack and the technologies, the hardware technology stack, and they have close partnerships with key vendors in the main supplier industry. It's a great combination of talents on all aspects merged with great customer service. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. If I was in IT today, I wouldn't buy from anywhere else. Sincerely would not buy from anywhere else. And Alan doesn't. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Alan's uh, well, and, and like the white glove support, you know, I had a server I bought from them like a year and a bit ago and one of the drives gave out because uh, that happens. And, uh, you know, the, at the same time, I was dealing with a drive failure uh, from a drive I didn't buy through them that I bought off Amazon uh, and had to do the RMA through the manufacturer. 
And, well, the process of doing it through the manufacturer wasn't bad. Doing it through IX was just so much easier. Like, you post the ticket with, like, the dump of the smart data, and uh, they're like, yeah, verified, okay. Um, you fill out this form. Uh, they understand the fact that I'm not necessarily having the drive shipped to my house. It's like, oh, where's the server at? Oh, it's in this data center. Okay, and here's the extra data we'll put on the package so the data center know which, uh, which customer this drive is for. So they'll set it aside for you and so on. And, and they dealt with uh, actually having the drive shipped to the place it needed to be rather than to me in a different country than the server, uh, which also saved me having to you know, pay the duty to import it into Canada just to ship it back to the States where it actually needed to end up. Uh, and it was great that that was all built into their process. They, you know, I didn't have to, you know, send them a ticket and ask them to do that. It was already built into the process. Uh, but they just shipped the replacement drive, uh, including a prepaid label to ship the old drive back for them to deal with it. And it was just great. Yeah, that's Versus great. Versus with the manufacturer, it was like, okay, yeah. go yeah. jump through a bunch of hoops to prove that yeah. the drive really that. is dead. I'm oh, not I hate just, that so I'm much. I'm not just a noob who I thinks that. the drive is dead. Oh, I hate that. And uh, every time you go to do it, by the way, the hard drive vendor's websites for how you submit that and find that has changed every single time. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, please download our special tool and run it on the drive. Oh, and I hate that. On Windows. It's yeah. like, well, the drive clicks and it won't. Right. You plug it in the Doesn't even show up to the OS. Doesn't even show up to the OS. You can't yeah. check it. <laughs> no. Or oh you try to gosh. boot with the drive attached and yeah. it literally says, you know, yeah. uh, SATA drive six failed. This is and, and press F1 to resume. This is a great example of the IX difference. It really is. You just say, I mean, not only does the burn-in process save you a ton of time, but when, you know, after production something happens, you're saving time there too. Uh, it's, it's, and, you know, you also can, you can get a grasp by visiting their What's New page uh, that yes. they truly fundamentally get this tech. Like, uh, I love this protecting data with ZFS they posted yesterday. The, the image of that one? Yeah, where they got the single bit error in the image. Yeah, it's kind so of like what you've been talking, talking about for a long time. Their, uh, the FreeNAS and TrueNAS devices they sell and, you know, basically what happens if one bit, which is, you know, one-eighth of a byte in some, one of your files gets flipped and shows up as the wrong thing because of a problem with the hard drive or whatever. Mm -hmm. Well, if you don't have ZFS, uh, you know, you're storing it on any other file system that's not ZFS, basically, uh, then your picture will end up looking like that. And uh, now, now you're... you're Priceless memories are, are ruined. Yeah, you audio listeners should go check out the What's bit. New page. It's a great demonstration of... That's, that's a standard JPEG image, and if you flip one bit in it, that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's not much to do about it. But with ZFS, because it has checksums, as long as you have any kind of the, redundancy, the mirroring or RAID Z or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, or even Ditto blocks set up mm -hmm. in your ZFS, mm -hmm. it'll recover that one bit error and... Get your file back. I like this too because this is also a great piece that you could print out and just sort of discuss with. If you're if you are in an IT organization where you're discussing ZFS for backend storage, and you know you're trying to think of the pros and cons of going with maybe a NAS system that built by IX Systems, you could show them this. Versus, you know, one you can buy at a store somewhere else that's not right. ZFS, right. and you're just like, right. okay, yeah. well, if how we important store, is our data to the company? Yeah, if if whether it's you know your memories of your children or whatever or if it's you know critical business data yep. or some whether that's an excel sheet or you know a virtual machine or mm -hmm. whatever it happens to be mm -hmm. uh if you're not using zfs to protect it then that's what's going to happen to well, you and you know i could just imagine a conversation with my wife like if something ever happened to our photos and then she found out there was potentially a software stack that could have protected that data mm -hmm. i mean i would be in the doghouse for weeks <laughs> so that's well, and, you, you know, know 
we be- save your marriage. We started having the discussion. <laughs> when you have individual drives that are two, three, four, six terabytes, and they have bit error rates of you know one of these single bit errors in every uh, like uh, was it like hundred gigabytes of reading or hundred mm, terabytes of reading or whatever um, means that over the course of a year that's going to happen more than once. Yeah, I guess it was a, probably a hundred terabytes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's in total read write to the drive, right, or something like that. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it was like that, or amount of hours of operation. I can't remember. But. Yeah, but so for every so many gigabytes you read off, eventually one of them is going to be goofed up, and if you don't have ZFS to detect that, then that's what your photos are going to end up looking like. Mm. I love their number too. One eight five five grep for ix. That's great. <laughs> they, they understand that it's Unix and people yeah. look at that. Yeah. So go over to ixsystems.com/techsnap, or you know, give them a call, and uh, also you can download their ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. That's mm-hmm. a, a white paper you can grab, and uh, they won't spam you. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Big thank you to IX for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Kind of always want a new rig when we do that spot. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, okay, Helen. Goodsecurityquestions.com. This is a list of what makes up, or I guess maybe a site that can help you determine what makes up a good security question. Is this like the stuff where you double check to see if it's you, like mother's maiden name and those yeah, kinds of things? Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. It's for resetting password or for bypassing two-factor authentication in case you lose your phone or whatever uh, and, and stuff like that. And uh, basically, uh, this list came up via uh, an email I got from one of our uh, suppliers when they switched to having two-factor authentication. And uh, it turns out this goodsecurityquestions.com is where they got the uh, criteria they used to, okay. to explain to people from. Okay. And so I dug into it some more and got some more. So this hmm. is something I wanted to cover. I know we've talked about security questions a bit before. Uh, and, you know, we've also talked about doing things like using something like LastPass and coming up with a completely random answer for each question or whatever. Uh, but I just thought some of their examples... Uh, kind of express what is good and what is bad and give people something to think about. I like it. And plus, so they, we always have, we can always sort of focus on this kind of thing a little more. Exactly. Yeah, there's, you can't, uh, yeah, that's great. So they have basically five criteria that determine what uh, is a good security question. And then at this uh, good security question website, they've actually done a survey of people to try to ah. to see how these actually apply to real people rather than just in, in theory. Theory. Because mm-hmm. they found that some questions are very good but they found that nobody they surveyed would actually want to use that question for one reason or another. <laughs> uh, so the criteria are, A, it has to be safe, such that it can't be guessed or researched. So the name of your pet is not good, because people can figure that out. No, that's how I, that's a frequent one that I would use for teachers right. when I was uh, in school. Yeah, or teachers, uh, which seemed fine, but now that we have things like you know classmates.com and Facebook, uh, it's pretty easy uh, to be able to research and find that out because you don't even necessarily it like you know you might not have ever done posted something on Facebook about uh, your sixth grade teacher or whatever, but you did you know connect to someone that you knew in sixth grade and someone can by following the trail figure out all right we happen to know that Chris went to school in sixth grade with this person and this person mentioned that their teacher was so and so. Another thing people do all the time right. is post pictures of their pets. You know, I'm out yeah. on a walk with Barney or whatever the pet's name is. Yeah, <laughs> so, and so on. Yeah, I mean, that, you, you got to really be cognizant of that kind of thing. Yeah, and then some of those you could just get to the point where someone could send you a message asking you what's the name of your pet and you wouldn't think to not answer. <laughs> Ooh, I love talking about Barney. <laughs> yeah. uh, big one that bites a lot of people is stable. You want something that does not change over time. Hmm. Uh, almost every one of these I've ever looked at has something like... Um, 
you know, what's your favorite book or movie or something? Sure, yeah. It's like, well, that changes a lot. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, is like, you know, where do you live or what was this or, you know. Where do you live is even true, yeah. Or where do you go vacation? Yeah. Where do you reti- What do you want to retire? Yeah, or it could even be, you know, uh, the where did your significant other grow up or something? But, you know, doesn't necessarily, but that could be something that might actually change. Yeah, it could. <laughs> You know, you look at the uh, divorce rate, <laughs> or uh, even if you know, uh, one of the example questions I had is like, What's the name of the city where your oldest sibling lives? Well, your oldest sibling could move, and if you don't end up using this question for two years, you don't remember where they lived before, yeah. or that, that's not the right answer. Yeah, I've and actually they're confused. Why is this not the right answer? I've had the problem where uh, I don't remember if it was a bank or what it was, but the security question was, What's your favorite X? I think it was like teacher or car or something. It was kind of specific. Like, it was what was your favorite high school teacher or your favorite car you had, whatever it was. And I answered it and then went back a couple years later and it prompted me and I, pff, I had no idea what I put in there. Could not recall it at all. Mm-hmm. I was locked out. Uh, when I was a teenager, I also answered something inappropriate as one of the answers. Oh, sure, of course. On the phone, I yeah. was like, I don't remember what I put because yeah. I honestly didn't remember. Yeah. Uh, and then they looked at the answer and like, ah. And so they, they're yeah. like, oh. Yeah. They just figured I didn't want to answer because of what I read. My, uh, in my bank, you can set nicknames online for your uh, checking accounts. And I yeah. just thought that was like a display thing that would display on the website. But it actually updates their records. And I named my checking account my effing checking, you know, because <laughs> I didn't think anybody would see that. And so one day the lady's asking me, she's like, okay, so is this for the account? Uh, oh, um, and then she has to read it out the whole thing. <laughs> that was great. So yeah, that um, was a good moment though. <laughs> I like mine. Mine will have like Star Trekky names. Yeah, that's, like, that's primary what I should do. fun story. That's what I should do. Yeah, yeah, primary fun stories. That's a great idea. Al- alternative funds tank or something like that. <laughs> uh, but then anyway, the the next criteria is memorable because you have to be able to remember it. If it's something you're going to answer and then not remember what the answer was later, uh, that's not very good. Uh, simple, right? You want something that's precise, simple, and consistent. Yeah. Uh, the problem I've had with one was like, you know, it's like the name of your, uh, the school, you, your grade school or whatever. Yep. It's like, well, there's like six different ways I could write that. There's like the initials mm-hmm. for it. Yes. Or right. did I put spaces or right. not? Right. Did I capitalize like each letter? Like all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. And then the biggest one is many. There have to be many possible answers. If there's only one possible answer that, to the question, then... Uh, it's not very useful. Oh, very good. You're right. Right? Uh, you know, so if it's your favorite, uh, I don't know. What's, uh, yeah. Well, what was the name of the first beach you ever visited was one of the examples of a good one. Mm. That's probably not something that's going to be uh, posted on your Facebook, you know, because your first time was probably a long time ago or whatever. Yeah. And uh, But there are many beaches to choose from. Whereas if you made it more restricted to something uh, – where there wouldn't be as many possible answers, it would be easier for someone to guess. Right? Because even if, what's your favorite color? Most people probably don't pick, you know, one of those aquamarine or, or something. It's like red or blue, right? And if there's like, you know, eight colors that will get 90% of people's answers, that's not a very good question. Hmm, yeah, very true. Right? So it's important uh, that the answer is not something that someone could easily learn just by friending you on Facebook or following you on Twitter or whatever. So uh, some of the good examples I had are what's the name of the first beach you ever visited? Uh, what was the last name of the teacher who gave you your first failing grade? Oh! Right? 
Or, you know, uh, what's the name of your first stuffed animal doll or action figure? Aww. Uh, now, action figure maybe doesn't make it work because you didn't actually give it a name. But yes, my first stuffed animal was just given like an, a name, like a pet, basically. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's uh, down to, you know, even the pet question, if you made it your very first pet, that might be uh, a slightly better question than what your current pet is, obviously. Also, your first pet doesn't change and your current pet could. Yes. If something yes. happened to your pet and then you got another pet or whatever. Yes. Uh, but uh, too many of the more popular questions, especially... Uh, what I don't like is you go to a place and they don't let you enter your own question. You have to pick from their list and their list is full of bad ones. Yes, very common. Uh, like the most common thing to happen, actually. Yes. <laughs> and so many of the popular questions are too easily researched. For example, mm-hmm. uh, they have an example. Uh, what was the town? Uh, in what town was your first job? Well, A, it's probably the town you grew up in, right? Because uh, your first job was probably in high school or something. Yep, yep. And so, you know, that's not that hard to research. Also, your first job might be listed on your resume and your Facebook page and your LinkedIn page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so... You might still be at your first job. Exactly, that too. Uh, you know, what school did you attend for grade six? Like we mentioned, uh, even if you haven't posted about it, you might be networked to someone who did and so on. Or uh, was your oldest sibling's birthday uh, the month and the year? So, you know, specifying the question how you want it formatted is useful, mm-hmm. right? Because if you just say, what's your sibling's birthday? It's like, well, is that like, February 21st or is that like, you know, February 1987 or what is it? What's the format? Yeah. Yeah. Do I put dashes Uh, or slashes? (laughs) Also, then you're stuck with, it's not your Facebook account that might give up the answer, but your siblings. So I can't control what my sister writes on her Facebook. So using information about her in my secret questions is probably a bad idea because she might post something not knowing that's actually... Uh, minimizing my right. security. Right. right, right, yes, very, very true. Family has a way of doing that, Alan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then I have a, they have a graphic here of just an excerpt. Uh, they want to act the this uh, goodsecuritywestions.com charges money for their full thing, but they have an example here where they show some of the questions and how they rate it. So they did, you know, looking at the question, in what city or town does your nearest sibling live? Uh, you know, that's a not a very safe question, but not horrible. But it's not a stable question because they could move, right? And also, it's not enough possibilities uh, because you only have one oldest sibling. Uh, and also, some people don't have siblings and, and so on and so on and so on, right? But it's probably fairly memorable because you should know where your sibling lives, right? And it's fairly simple. And, and many, But uh, some of the other uh, bad questions were like, um, what was the name of the place where your wedding reception was held? Mm. Now, obviously, if you haven't had a wedding yet or whatever, right. that's not a very good question. But, but you, if it is, the problem is that the place is too general, right? Oh is yeah. it what city was it in? What business was it at? It also what assumes that you're in? not going to get hacked by close friends or family. That's maybe who yes. would want to go after you. So they might not. They might already know that answer. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, less likely of a situation, but it's entirely possible you will have more than one wedding. Oh, again, very true. Eventually, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, so that doesn't necessarily mean you should exclude that question because that's kind of a very specific uh, circumstance. Although in the States, I guess, was it like 50% divorce rate? Maybe it's uh, not that uncommon in a situation. But uh, the biggest problem with that one is a name of the place is not specific enough, right? Do they mean the city, the you know, the area, the business, or you know, how specific was it? This has given me a lot more to think about than I thought. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's definitely hard to pick the right question. 
you don't realize how much nuance goes into something like this until you see it all broken down like this. Right, and you can you can tell that a lot of places they're like, oh, right, uh, we should have security questions because other people do too. Yeah, yeah, but they didn't put the same amount of thought into coming right. up with questions. No, and yeah, goodsecuritykwestions.com if you want to check it out. We'll have a link in the show notes too. Yeah. Anything else on that one, Alan? There might not be the rest resource for it, but uh, they're the one that it I found that seemed had, useful uh, to us, huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, just um, they have a a list of like 174 of the best questions or whatever, but they want twenty dollars for it. Oh. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, I'm that's sure interesting there are other model, places you can go to find more information and so on. It's yeah. just that's the one I came up with based on, Some uh, honestly, searching based on, I got an email from Pier 1 and they had that list of five things. And when I was looking, it's like, oh, I think this is where Pier 1 got that from in the first place. And so I, I updated my link to point to that. Anyway. Very good. All right. And uh, we'll have all of that in the show notes. I want to tell you about Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com, friends. Techsnap.ting.com to give the TechSnap program credit, but also give yourself a $25 credit off your first Ting device or if you've got a Ting-compatible device on your Ting plan. What is Ting? Ting is mobile that makes sense. No contract, no early termination fee, and you only pay for what you actually use. Ting takes your messages, your minutes, and your megabytes. They add them all up. So I'm uh, past my two-year mark. I'm saving over $2,200 by switching to Ting two years ago. I've got three lines. I've got an HTC One, a Nexus 5, and an iPhone 5 on there. And I got to tell you, having those three phones and the crews using them all the time, we're really savvy about using Wi-Fi. I think sometimes my bill is as low as 30 bucks. Sometimes it's as high as 45 bucks for three phones. It's incredible. And you can get started right now by going to techsnap.ting.com. They got the whole range of devices from feature phones to the absolute greatest Android devices, including the Nexus 6, if you want to pick it up and get the SIM card from Ting. And Ting's getting even more awesome by adding GSM very, very soon, which should make your service like even better, especially for those of you who travel. So you might start to think, man, Ting is so awesome. Do I ever have to worry about Ting going away? Well, they asked their executive just that question. What a great question you had. Kelsey asks, do you ever see yourself as selling out to become a larger, less awesome company like the big guys or just take the money and disappear altogether? I feel like every time a great independent company starts up and gains momentum, something like Google or Amazon come along, offer jillions of dollars, and it's just something you can't turn down in favor of your family. <laughs> so we're, we're not in this to sell. You know, uh, Two Cows, which is the, the parent company of Ting, has been around a long, long time. Uh, we're very established. Um, we love what we do. And you know, what we'd really like to do is make as many people happy as possible. Um, you know, it's certainly the case that uh, uh, people do come along and it's possible we could get some offer that we can't refuse. But from our perspective, what that would likely include would be some big telco recognizing uh, that they wanted to do what we're doing and we're actually bringing us in to run the show. So wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Techsnap.ting.com. Go check them out. They got a savings calculator. You can use the savings calculator to see how much you would save and you just plug in your actual existing usage. Techsnap.ting.com. You can also check out all their other videos on YouTube. Also follow them at, at TingFTW on Twitter or call them 1-855-TINGFTW. Anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. Allen time, that's East Coast, and a uh, real human being will answer the phone and they'll solve your problem. They just pick it up and like talk to you as a person and solve it. Yeah. Well, I, that's, that's the biggest thing to point out there is that 
they're not a startup that's trying to break into the mobile market. No. Two Cows has in fact been around longer than yeah. Google yes, and Amazon yes. and all the and Very all the true. companies that go around gobbling up these other companies. Yeah. No kidding, uh, huh? And Two Cows has uh, got a good track record too. Yeah. Uh, check it uh, out. I think it's great. They've been there for a long time, and they, yeah. they definitely know what they're doing. And, and uh, they also have, like, MiFi devices, too, if you don't need a phone. You just right. want a data connection. But cool. their story actually kind of reminds me of IX having a similar story of, of they've been through the whole dot-com thing, and they've survived it all, and they've got down to, we just want to run our business that we like doing yeah. and make people happy. Yeah. We're not yeah. uh, <clears throat> interested in, in, you know, strategic exits and, and leveraged no. liquidity. We want to make a sustainable strategy. business for everybody. Exactly. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, you know what else is great? BSD Now, Common Sense Approach, episode 72. Just hit the internet as we're recording this here episode. This would be a good time to go start your download in the background while we finish the rest of TechSnap. Common Sense Approach. Any uh, tidbits for this episode, Alan? Uh, it's about uh, OpenSense, the new fork of PFSense, the Ooh. firewall. Oh, that might be and applicable to our audience's interest. Yeah, uh, they're, uh, you know, especially uh, we were talking about it because of obviously like the ACES uh, security vulnerability in routers that we talked about last week. Uh, we also, in that episode, talk, uh, Chris Moore uh, built a IPFW-based uh, firewall for his house. Uh, so if you want to play with that, it's also uh, <sighs> interesting. Just turning, he turned it like an old AMD dual core machine he had laying around the house into his home road. Episode 72. Uh, and that's done by hand uh, so we can do other stuff with it as well. That's cool. If you're not necessarily looking for the appliance type approach like a PFSense or an OpenSense. Mm. And OpenSense looks, I'm going to have to watch episode 72 of the BSD Now program and we're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, well, in the feedback segment. And guess what? With the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or clicking that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, are you ready, sir? Because DTK writes in a big one, and it's kind of a semi-common question that we get in different forms. So let's take a crack at this. Uh, DTK says, my buddy needs storage resilience. I like that. Uh, up to including the loss of an entire NAS header node. I know that TrueNAS HA will provide this, but my buddy doesn't need that amount of online storage. He only needs, get this, about three or four terabytes usable and is considering a pair of FreeNAS mini appliances or two Atom-based servers with FreeNAS software only edition. How does one set up real-time synchronous replication and fast failover? ZFS, or I'm sorry, ZFS snapshots and ZFS send and receive sound great for asynchronous replication, you know, site to site, live to DR, etc. But within the site, it sounds like there could be a period of time during which the application thinks it's written the data, the failover occurs, and the receiving header has not received the ZFS send that includes the recently written file. You mentioned that IX Systems has built a clustered pair of FreeNAS mini appliances that did an eight-way RAID 1 mirroring. Did they ever publish how they did that cross-box mirroring? Also, does something like HST, HAST plus CARP expose the risk of a split brain in the case of a transient partition? Does HA, which, What's HAST? I'm blanking on that. High, uh, high Availability Storage Technology. Ah, H, it's, HAST. It's like um, uh, DRDB, but for FreeBSD. Okay. HAST plus CARP play nicely with ZFS, and, it should be, and should it be above or below the ZFS? Does FreeNAS support any sort of fencing or... Don't know this one either. Stomp? S? No okay. Uh, to prevent uh, split brain. That's a pretty complicated um, question broken so down into a few parts. Way, the way the TrueNAS does it is they have one set of disks uh, called a storage slide, right? 
and then they'll have two head nodes. Okay. And those will just use SAS multipath. Right? So they have two uh, separate computers, each running uh, true NAS, which is free NAS plus some extras. Uh, it'll have their uh, storage controller cards, and both cards will then be connected to the chassis, one or more chassis full of disks. So you only have one set of disks, and there's two controllers controlling them, and one's the master and one's the slave, and if the uh, uh, master is off, the slave takes over. And so you don't end up with any split bane type problems because you're writing to the same disks. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the downside is that you're not gaining extra um, resiliency from having the whole second set of disks. Uh, versus what you get when you do the replication. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, the problem with the replication is that yes, if you replicate on you know five minute snapshots, even uh, everything after that last five minute snapshot could be lost. Uh, now ZFS will deal with it, but your application will yeah be like hey, there's five minutes of data missing now, or somewhere zero to five minutes worth of data missing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also generally, uh, that type of setup is more of a not an uh, automatic failover, it'd be a manual failover okay. uh, in dealing with it. But mm. um, So then uh, Haston Carp, uh, you can do that, although uh, to do it the way you're talking about, what you have to do is use it under ZFS. So you have ZFS, and it's talking, instead of having the hard drives, it's talking to the Hast devices, and then Hast will basically split the data. So when you do a write to your disk, uh, when Hast gets the write, it'll put one copy to the disk in the, in the master system and then send the second copy to the slave over the network. And depending on the mode you put Hast in, it won't say that the hard drive's done that right until both systems have the right, and then you're okay. Uh, Hast has some stuff for preventing split brain, but as long as the two can talk to each other, they're usually pretty good. Um, and uh, there's also... Um, the issue with that one is you have to make sure that the second system isn't trying to use ZFS at the time, mm. right? So the pool has to be exported on the second mm. system. Okay. Uh, so on the FreeBSD wiki, on the Hast page, uh, there's the scripts that trigger off CARP. So okay. when the CARP on the slave detects that the master's gone away and becomes the master, it triggers an event which can fire off the script which will import the ZFS pool and uh, let it run. And then obviously the, uh, the master uh, is offline. Uh, or at least lost network, and so it it uh, exports the pool and stops touching it, and then um, when it comes back, you have to it uh, the slave machine is the master now and lets the uh, old master resync and sit as a slave. Slick until you uh, trigger flipping back uh, the way you want. That's slick. That works. Yeah, uh, I think that might still require a little manual work to once the master original master comes back up to flip everything back over. Okay. Uh, but that's one way to do it. Uh, generally, it depends on your workload, um, what you're trying to do. Um, the Obviously, the SAS multipath is the one that has the fewest moving parts that are going to break. I love that. But that requires basically two separate servers and then separate storage sleds that aren't in the servers. So you're thinking maybe the FreeNAS Mini might not be great since he's going to need some expansion slots, so maybe you should go with a, a rig that has some... Um, well, but, uh, I'm not sure what the IX uh, thing what they did with the two minis was. Uh, I oh, think it might, might be the a, one based on Hast. They might they have a PCI Express they, slot in there too. Well, they do. Yeah. Uh, uh, but they, they showed off something where they ran two FreeNAS minis together. Yes, I remember. Um, I'm looking at, it up right now. At, at MeBSD, although I don't know. I think that's a feature that's not out yet. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that one's based on Hast. 
Uh, but I'm guessing they've done uh, some work to make that work a little cleaner rather than just a shell script. Yeah, I remember, actually, I did look inside the uh, FreeNAS Mini, and there is well, a... Honestly, your best bet is to ask IX. Oh, jeez, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's what, um, that's what they're great at. If you're, if you're buying minis. Um, wow, this is a slam dunk IX systems question, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and they'll sell you the hardware to do it because, yeah, you might not really need a TrueNAS if you only need four terabytes of storage. Whereas normally the true NAS, the idea is you have these two heads and then you have sleds with like 45 disks each. And so you like to have the first head will connect to the first sled and the first sled to the second sled and the second sled to the third sled and the third sled connects to the second head. <laughs> and now each, the, the operating system on each of those two machines sees all 150 some odd hard drives that are in those three sleds. Uh, let's see here. I'm looking right now to see <clears throat> if they have it in the specs for the uh, for the mini. I'm looking at the PDF. Uh, eight core, oh. two point four gigahertz uh, CPU. Yeah. Wow, really? It's eight core. The FreeNAS yeah. mini. It's uh, incredible. Adam. Yeah, I know, but jeez, eight core in a mini. Uh, four bay, four drive bays, sixteen gigs of RAM, depending. Um, yeah, but I, I don't see anything cool. about PCI expansion, but it just might not be on the spec list. Because I do recall when I looked in there, I saw one. I think that tiny board has one. Yeah. Yeah, but just I think As it your FreeNAS mini is one older too, isn't it? Yeah, I, yeah, it does. In fact, I put a. Uh, in fact, yeah, you know what I did is I, I put a SATA card in my in my FreeNAS Mini. Right, but yours is the older one. That's it is, like yeah. Five or i three. Yeah, uh, it's an i three. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and the new ones are uh, based on the server processes, so that you get the um, AESNI, the um, crypto offload, and the virtualization offload, and all the great stuff. Which is super nice. Okay, Alan, next... Yeah, e- there's a couple different ways to do that, and uh, the Hascarp one, check the FreeBSD wiki uh, for the recipe for that. Good. Very good. Next email comes in from Richard about uh, some feedback for episode 196. In episode 196, you made reference to the thought that you guys remember the staple might have been potentially hacked. Well, uh, he says, I got a letter uh, from the uh, head about data security incident, and my card was involved from Staples. He said he'd be glad to supply a letter, and he also included a link to all of the uh, to the PDF of all the involved stores. He says, here's what you need to know. 115 stores had malware, uh, and 113 uh, had them between 8.10.14 and 9.16.14. So if you went to Costco, or I'm sorry, Staples then, then there was two other infections. Remember, we talked about this a long time ago, between 7.20.14 and 9.16.14. Right, so we talked about this originally uh, around this. Uh, it was around the same time as the Home Depot one, if I remember correctly. Uh, and then I think wasn't it last week we came out and said that, you know, they had actually announced it. And uh, it's interesting because you know we've been talking about this law that required them to do it within thirty days, and it seems Staples kind of took a lot longer than that in this case. I think uh, I can't remember. I don't think my store was in there, but. I uh, I've recently just I didn't this, hear that any of the ones in Canada were whereas Home Depot it did affect Canada I think this week I had car, car, card fraud on my account they shut down my card you know I had about five hundred dollars worth of fraudulent transactions go through um, mm-hmm. so I had to fill out a fraud form I had to go get a new debit card get a new pin number I had to do all that crap so it, I don't know if I don't I don't know where it got picked up at but it might have been one of these hacking yeah uh, like, my business one it's like I don't it's like I swear the only place I used it. Uh, physically, was at a train station in England. Uh, yeah, I very rarely use mine physically. And, like I never used it physically anywhere else. Yeah, it was all online. Yeah, and so I'm not sure how they were using it. They, they, it must have been a, a card reader or a, um, a skimmer at that train station because yeah. they uh, had printed out on um, 
the like gift cards or whatever and tried to use it at like a Macy's in New York and a gas station in Georgia and uh yeah one other store somewhere else a Target yeah. in like Florida or something uh my uh my, the people that took mine were buying video games like Guild Wars 2 and stuff online and I think they're they 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 haven't tracked down to the state and all of that but uh it's just so weird so weird Okay, uh, Matt writes, and maybe maybe OpenSense might get a mention here. He says, uh, I'm uh, sick of crappy routers that use insecure, outdated firmware that I have no control over. So I'm wanting to create my own, maybe buy a good router. Now, here's the thing. The rub is definitely money. He doesn't have a ton to throw at a router. He's either going to repurpose an old Intel Atom media box as an open-source-powered router, although... He also needs Wi-Fi, so I think he's considering getting a, a uh, an actual like router device. However, as often as you guys talk about routers, I don't know if you've ever talked about the best at-home solution. The main problem may be that I need to support about 11 devices wirelessly. After all, mobiles, consoles, etc. Are, are accounted for. What setup do you guys recommend? Any particular distro of Linux or BSD you could recommend for this? Any tutorials? Do you think that the Intel well, Atom with a USB wireless dongle would actually be enough? Thanks so much, guys. Love the show and the network in general. Keep up the great coverage. This is uh, literally what half of our show was about on BSD Now yesterday. Yeah, uh, you should probably go watch it, huh? So uh, on our website, we have a tutorial for doing it with OpenBSD. Uh, last week's, uh, uh, this week's episode, we have a tutorial from Chris Moore about doing it with uh, FreeBSD or TrueOS using IPFW. Uh, and I think there's at least one other one on there. Or we've also done uh, PFSense, including we have a video tutorial of walking through the menus and showing you kind of how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, uh, Spare Machine works great, and you can do one of our tutorials or put on PFSense or whatever. Um, Since Wi-Fi wireless, is so critical, what do you think? What Chris and I both do is, we uh, Chris kept his existing, uh, his original router that he doesn't trust the firmware on, and go into it, disable DHCP and all the settings, and use it only basically as a Wi-Fi access point. So the users uh, connect to it via the Wi-Fi, and then connect to your real firewall uh, like DHCP comes sure, through the real firewall, sure. and so basically you plug the um, the WAN port that would normally go to the uh, your internet connection, uh, into uh, uh, the one from the your old router, the internet connection into your switch or whatever, uh, to let you connect to your um, your real firewall and just disable DHCP and so on on the uh, the old device and use it just for Wi-Fi. Um, now, if his current router doesn't have Wi-Fi, if he ends up going the route of getting like a pre-built router instead of going something like an old custom box, which I think both of I would recommend, you go that route. If you just if you can't because of money, go to myopenrouter.com. It's a community where they talk about some of the more current hardware and the firmwares that work on them, like OpenWRT and Tomato, and they cover uh, articles and There's press releases about routers that should be compatible with alternative firmwares. There's a BSD one, but I think it's. Mostly specific to like D-Link models from Europe because that's the developer work that sure. D-Link. Yeah, uh, I uh, yeah. I also I think out of all the open alternative ones right now, my current favorite is Open WRT, but uh, DDWRT is around too. So is Tomato. I don't know what the current status of some of those are, but uh, myopenrouter.com yeah. probably could get you up. To uh, it. The nicer thing about a spare PC is it just has a lot more horsepower than yeah. any of the little tiny boxes. And expansion for future stuff. Like maybe later on he wants to put a PCI wireless card in there or something like that. Yeah. You know, that's nice uh, But yeah, basically uh, what we, uh, Chris and I both did is just use our, like I have my old Netgear router. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, I never did use it as a router. I only ever bought it to, to do the Wi-Fi. Uh, and, uh, you know, Chris used his old Asus or whatever and just uh, disabled all the other functionality on it and... Uh, and use it just to do, basically, as a wireless bridge yeah. between it to connect all the wireless devices. To yeah. If, it, if his existing router has that, 
then that would be a great uh, way to actually, go. I phased out my my Netgear in favor of the tiny little yeah, the, yeah, uh, Planet Link Japan. Com one in Japan because yeah. it does wireless N instead of just G. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, uh, and uh, for a little while I think I was using both, enforcing all the G devices to go off so that the N one would be clear and could use five gigahertz or whatever. You know, Alan, at uh, my house here, or I'm sorry, at the studio here and at my house, I have to do N five gigahertz. To get reliable signal, there's there by the studio here. I think there's 40 APs that I can pick up, and they're all pretty much 2.4 gigahertz for the most part. And at home, it's like not that many, but it's almost as many. It's so bad that when things get busy at night, and like people are watching Netflix on their tablet and stuff, like I, I if we're not on five gigahertz, we start just dropping out like crazy. Yep, it's disgusting. Yeah, I'm Ethernet, all the things. Ethernet everywhere, and I don't yeah. use my wireless. Yeah, anything that's like anything that's like important, like anything I got to do, it's important. I just plug in every time. Got to plug in. Yep. Okay, so Mike's got a couple of big questions that we need to answer for him. So they're and they're different. Uh, he says he's got just for, for our reference at home. I think he's got a basically uh, my setup here at the studio: Proxmox server doing virtualization in front using Ubuntu and Arch front-end servers for the LAN. But now he says he's got 10 virtual servers that need to be updated somewhat regularly, and SSHing into each one of them is a pain. So I was going to try and learn Chef to solve this problem. Unfortunately, the Master Chef server that all the other servers get their instructions from needs to have a real, fully qualified domain name. I've got the domain with Dynamic DNS rocking already, so that's not a problem. The problem is this. Everything is sitting behind my PFSense firewall, and all I know how to do is forward specific ports. How do I let traffic through to an entire host name dot domain behind my firewall? Uh, you can't actually do that because the domain, uh, the way it works is when you're sitting out here on the internet and you look up hostname.domain, uh, you get the IP address and you connect to the IP address. Yeah. And so <laughs> the external IP address uh, from your PFSense is going to be the same for everyone in your machines. And so that's not really going to work. Now, if your chef is inside your network, you probably want it to actually just connect over your internal IP addresses, not to your public internet-facing IP address. Uh, so what you can do is you can create a subdomain of your uh, domain you have, like .int or .internal or something, and then have each machine, you know, name.internal, uh, .domain.com or whatever, and it points to the internal IP address uh, that you assign. Uh, or you can have your DHCP server do the dynamic DNS updates uh, on your... You can configure the DNS server on your PFSense yeah. to go and update your I domain, love that. so that uh, when if machines get a you know especially virtual machines are you going to spin them up and down all the time, uh, then mm -hmm. basically uh, DHCP daemon will go and update the host name, make yep. it point to the right IP address, and I, or I, create it if it doesn't. Make I it just got to say, uh, and I know I've mentioned this before on the show, but if you don't have this set up. This makes things so nice. Uh, like, if you've ever had problems like doing network browsing and look, browsing your network for file shares or where services are supposed to automatically discover devices, like, for example, on my phone, it'll scan and find all of the Roku devices on my network. Well, because of dynamic DNS, thanks to PFSense and automatically updating the DNS every time a DHCP lease is issued, I always know the names. I always have the names of all the devices. Everything can automatically discover itself. It's brilliant, and it's so worth setting up, especially and, if you uh, already have PFSense. Yeah, and on all your... Uh Unix machines, you know, you have your resolve.conf file. You get a line you put at the top, search, space, and uh, you can do a, a space-separated list of domains. Yeah. Uh, and then when you type an unqualified domain, uh, so just like the host name, so, you know, Chris or uh, Trooper is the name of my file server, <laughs> uh, it will automatically search for trooper.each of those domains until it finds ones that work. 
Uh, so even though uh, at one point I had like three domains that my servers were spread across because I had different companies, uh, I could type just a short name and it would find uh, the right domain that it was on. And it, so instead of having to type, you know, trooper.hml3.scaleengine.net, yeah. I just type trooper, trooper. and it finds it. Yep, it's great. All right, part two of his question, Alan. <laughs> okay, so that's part one. Uh, I've been running a mail server on my VPS for several months and things have been going swell. Until two weeks ago when I borked my MySQL somehow during an app get update and I gave up. And I rebuilt the server. It's up and running the next day. But something was different. Maybe it was configured differently before. But my handy log watch report started telling me that the servers are hammering away trying to log in. Oh, the servers are getting hammered, I think he means to say. Mostly the attempts are his root. Two weeks into this setup, and there were almost 2,000 failed root login attempts, despite my having failed to ban max retry equals one. I'm not worried about them getting in. I've got no root login, allow, uh, only allow users, and keys required plus failed to ban stacked on top of that. Well, uh, but they're still trying to get this, in all the time. The first thing he needs to check is, is the failed ban is actually working. So here's his question. How do I tell if something is wrong or there's a compromise? I've heard you guys talking about traceroute, I think. I think he means tripwire. Uh, or something to see if some nefarious software is phoning home. But I don't know how to use it. And there's got to be something easier than watching packets. How does a regular guy like me tell if his server is one of the many that are part of a bot army, unwittingly participating in the latest DDoS of a beloved major corporation. <laughs> Thanks for all you do. Keep up the great work, Mike. Yeah, so uh, there's a program called Tripwire, and what it does is basically writes down the hashes of all the files that are part of your system, like the binaries and so on, and then you can run it every night, and it'll notice when something changes. And if a binary changes, and it wasn't because you did an upgrade, that's suspicious. And you've mentioned uh, before, Bacula kind of can do this too, essentially, and also get backups. As, as part of its backup, it can uh, also save the hash into its catalog. Yep. Um, there's a few systems to do this too, really. You know, I mean, there's a lot of ways to really do it, but Tripwire's the one I've used in the past. And the nice thing about it is you get a good report, but you got to train it, right? So you got to do it kind of, see, kind of the thing is with Tripwire, you might be too late unless you are absolutely 100% positive that your machine is in a good state right now, right? right. Ideally, you set it up like as soon as you yeah. install. Yeah. And you have to remember that it is going to squawk every time you upgrade, and that's expected. Yeah. Um, and then for checking the connections, uh, it's harder on Linux. Because uh, you don't have as many tools that I know about. <laughs> hey there might be more tools, I just don't know about them. Okay. Uh, but obviously, netstat yeah. uh, minus a n. So the n will make it not resolve, and that makes it, it won't try to look up the IPs and turn them back into names, and that'll make a, it, it's easier to read, and b, it makes it run instantly instead of taking forever. Yeah. Uh, and that'll show every socket, including ones that are listening, and you can make sure that all the listening ones match up to a program you expect. I think you can also do minus P or something on Linux to show uh, which process is listening. Um, easier on FreeBSD, there's also Sockstat, which uh, makes it easier to associate what user and what app are doing it. Uh, but you can get some of the information from Netstat on Linux. It's just harder. I would also, a couple of things I would check out on... Uh, uh, so what I've one way I've always... Literally, because uh, uh, I've, I've encountered machines that have been compromised, usually they're web servers or FTP servers or mail servers, and in each situation, in each case, the way I found out about it was I watched bandwidth graphs. Unfortunately, that's always been the most, it's not the best system, but it's always just worked for me. So I would recommend checking out IFTOP on Linux. This is a really cool yep. way to look at your uh, bandwidth usage per connections. That's if you notice, on FreeBSD as well. Yeah, and you could take that IP address, it'll show you right there. In fact, I think there's even a flag to do resolving if you want, and see if yep. uh, you recognize uh, it that. It does resolving by default 
default, you have to okay. press N or do minus N to toggle it okay. uh, on the command line. And N load? Um, uh, do you have N load on? Yes. Okay. N load as well. Uh, it just gives you total stats on the outgoing, and it's a little easier to read. Uh, the problem with if top is sometimes it gets confused by TCP segmentation offloading. Uh, so basically, where your um, the operating system will take like a big packet and drop it and let the network card split it up into the fifteen hundred byte packets. Uh, and it'll count all of that as only 1,500 bytes when it was really as much as 64 kilobytes, uh, and that will make the numbers not necessarily be correct. Uh, it caused me a great deal of confusion for a while, because N-Load is like, all right, you're pushing this much b- bandwidth out, and yeah. like, I've checked that with the switch, that's what's actually coming out of the box. Okay. But I run IFTOP, the totals don't add up, and it was because the TCP segmentation offloading was tricking uh, mm. IFTOP. Hmm. So I just disabled TSO uh, and figured out where that was coming from and solved it and then turned TSO back on. But uh, it's just a little gotcha that you might run into with that. Uh, um, the other thing is just run, you know, do a full PSAUX, www. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. W is make it wider. Yeah. Uh, and look for bad just processes. go through and look for every process. Now, yeah. be careful. Some of them are tricky. They will actually, um, I don't know if Linux does it, but on a FreeBSD, if a process changes its name, uh, the original name is, is kept in like square brackets or something. Hmm. Um, and if you see specifically, if you see Perl trying to pretend that it's HTTPD, that's a bad sign. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, uh, I guess, by the way, I should mention before like we go too far off of the checksumming thing, um, just about every distribution that does package checksumming will allow you to see if what's installed matches, what's currently installed matches the package and all of that too. So that's a quick way yes, to do it. Um, on FreeBSD, it's package space check. And yeah. then I forget the flag. I think it's C for checksum. And uh, I got one the more. Package database stores the checksum of every single file that it installs and can tell if it's modified. Obviously, some of those, like the config files, you expect to be modified. But I have one more. It's not like installed by default on most distributions. I don't think it's installed by default on any distribution. Uh, but it's handy because sometimes, like if you got a really busy box and you know that uh, maybe one person is being particularly abusive, but you don't need to look at all of the connections and all because it'd just be too much. I, sometimes I get overwhelmed, right? So NetHogs lets you just look at like a set amount of top talkers, how much data has been transferred to those top talkers, and what process and user they're running on as the system, and what device they're going out over, and the total amount of sent and received. So it's a nice way to get like, all right, these five processes are taking this much bandwidth running as this user, and then you go look at that and see, is that legit? It should, who's connected to that? Should that be working? And you can start from there. And, yeah, or, uh, yeah, why is this process using that much bandwidth? I don't expect it to be. Yeah. Where is it actually connecting to? Oh, look, that's not somewhere it should be connecting to. I, you so. know, it's probably worth saying, too, another way to make this effective is you kind of have to know your system's baseline, too. So it's probably good to play with these tools when you're not trying to figure something out like this because you need to know what's normal and not normal. And you could probably, exactly. if something's really crazy, suss it out. But if they're really slick, maybe not. Yeah, it's it's definitely nice to have uh, an idea of what the system should look like and feel like, so that you can. Yeah. And that's why we uh, always say, you know, if you're using, if you're, if it's a server or something, you should be monitoring it and graphing those results, so that you can see the change over time and tell, oh look, all of a sudden at, um, you know, three a.m. yesterday, the amount of bandwidth being used went way up, or the number of active connections, or the number of. Uh, the one I graph is number of running processes. Yeah. All of a sudden, and that shot way up. One thing he didn't really specifically ask about, but he mentioned that in the old install, he wasn't seeing a whole bunch of log entries about failed logins, and now with the new install, he is. My bet would be that your old install was misconfigured and that the new installs configured correctly because... Right, and you just weren't picking up like, yeah. those those 2,000 failed SSH login attempts. Those were definitely still happening to your other machine, Yeah, and they just weren't being logged. Yep. <laughs> so I bet you got it set up right now and didn't have it set up right last time. 
Uh, okay, so uh, those are some great. I'm gonna have to go back and watch that and get some of the names of those so I remember them because those are great tools. Charles writes in with our last email this week uh, about a hard work. He says, "Love the show, and it's good to have a Canadian give a perspective I can relate to because he's that goes to a university not too far from you, Alan." I have a hardware upgrade question, uh, but I'm not sure if it's been asked before. I have an HP desktop with an A6 and one terabyte hard drive, dual booting Windows 7 and 8. He says, got stuff for right now. What I want to add is another H, or I'm sorry, another high drive, another hard drive or a hybrid or maybe an SSD. I would like to add this second drive to have it be Linux only. Am I crazy to try this? Is this even possible? Currently, I'm leaning towards a hybrid SSD hard drive, about 500 gigabytes, with eight gigabytes of, of SSD storage. That's a compromise for me between a hard drive and an SSD where I get more storage and less cost. Any suggestions or help would be appreciated. Cheers, Charles. Okay, so oh, it's a desktop, so adding a second drive should be no problem at all. No, no yes, problem. that's perfectly doable. That's my preferred uh, I've setup, too. I've actually done the exact same thing yeah. to my laptop because my laptop had the option of taking out the CD drive and putting in a second hard drive. And you know, uh, and it just made sure that whatever I was doing with my PCBSD or Linux or whatever wasn't breaking exactly. the windows that I still needed because yep. I needed to be able to record videos yep. at conferences yep. and that required Wirecast, which required Windows. Yep. And also, because it was a Lenovo, it didn't come with a disk to actually reinstall Windows. Oh, it was like, yeah. There's a partition on the disk yeah. to put Windows over to top image of it back, yeah. or whatever. But it, I was very worried about breaking that, and it's just like... Also, the Windows boots UEFI and PCBSD didn't back then. It does now, but it didn't. And so having that second hard drive just simplified my whole life. Yeah, if you're new to Linux too, what a great idea. Disconnect the Windows drive. That way you have 100% certainty. Now, uh, I'm not, I don't worry about it as much, but even sometimes when I'm like experimenting a lot and I'm like trying a bunch of different distributions where they all have different partition GUIs so I, don't, I could make a mistake... I, I often will just disable the hard drive in the BIOS because I'm lazy, but you could unplug it even. Um, yes, I, I seriously uh, unplugged SATA cables yeah. to make sure that what I was doing didn't affect the system I needed to you definitely know, keep working. I had a, I went through a, I went through about a decade, too, where I would buy desktop towers, and in the five and a quarter bays, I would put drive caddies in, and I would have a Linux drive I would slide in, and then I would pull that out and have a different dr Linux drive or a Windows drive, and I would just list like cartridges. I would load the Windows cartridge, load the Linux uh, cartridge. I love that. Uh, the reason my uh, storage server is called Trooper is it's actually the uh, Cooler Master Trooper case. Oh, yeah. Stormtrooper. And uh, it has a hot swap two and a half inch SSD bay in the front for doing that. Yes, yeah, perfect, all, huh? all the big bays inside are actually uh, four and three um, uh, Jeez, that's know, three a, and a half inches hot swap bays. That's a monster case, Alan. That's a huge, huge. That's a huge case for a file server. And lots of fans. Do you well, ever, it's got a lot of hard drives. It's got a handle, too. Yeah, that is nice. I got a, I got a case. Kind of, it's not as fancy as this one, though. Does yours have the removable SSD drive at the top slot? Yes, that's what I was just talking about. Oh, so that's oh, I was picturing SSD in it. Oh, I was picturing something different. No, like it, this SSD only goes like halfway in. Yeah, and you just so jam cool. it in the front. Uh, it would have been great when I was a student because we always had to have a, a um, an external hard drive with our virtual machines on it that we took from class to class, and it had to be the laptop style so it could be powered off USB and not require a plug out of the wall because they just didn't have enough plugs to let you know. Uh, 40 people in a class all plug in their external three and a half inch hard drive thing. And, uh, you know, it would have been great to just be able to jack that into the computer instead of using the USB interface when I wanted to use it at home. Of course, SSDs weren't really a thing when I was in school. God, this right. case makes me want to build a computer. <laughs> uh, yeah, but then I've actually moved away and now all of my storage, I have 
nice two U machines yeah. with twelve hard drives. Yeah. And they're all hot swap and uh, nice. I love the case I got from IX. It's got the twelve hot swap bays in the front and then two uh SSD hot swap bays in the back. Ooh. For the OS. Ooh, that is slick. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's Great. the end of the emails. Uh, don't forget, we, we, we need a rack in your garage. <laughs> we seriously, seriously do. Seriously, I almost, I almost got one. I was that close, but then it didn't work out. Um, so episode two hundred is just around the corner, and we'd love to hear your emails about how TechSnap has helped you out. Like maybe at work, a project, school, home, maybe something we covered. Your <laughs> Answered a question, anything. We just like to hear about it, and uh, kind of even maybe including there. What, what kind of coverage you like to hear on the TechSnap program? We're going to do a episode yeah. two hundred in a little bit, and would love to read some of that stuff on air and kind of do a special. But we need them. I think we've only gotten like two right now. It's really slim pickings. Uh, so in the subject line, episode two hundred. If you would put episode two hundred in the subject line, so we can search on that TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting dot com, or you can go to the contact page, choose TechSnap from the drop down. But we've only gotten two so far. That's going to be a super short episode. Super short. That's like yeah, so. Please don't do that to us. Yeah, because <laughs> we don't. We don't want to have episode. The next episode needs to be two hundred one, not two hundred point three. <laughs> also, we just could still. We still want your regular questions too for the show. Uh, anything you have to ask me or Alan, of course, just go over to the contact page or the subreddit techsnap.reddit.com. So we need the two hundred episode uh, stuff, but also we need your questions. We're almost an inboxer. We have like two or three emails in there right now. So uh, we need them, and uh, you have a great chance to get a question answered on air. Hopefully, it'll be very useful to you. Okay, Alan, with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup are stories that just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about them and give you some links to read up on on your own after the show. A lot of these links came from our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And Alan, our first one, it was just kind of a neat stat I wanted to cover. Uh, it was over on opensource.com. Uh, the world record has been set for a 100 terabyte sort by an open source and public cloud team. In October of 2014, Databricks participated in the sort benchmark and set a new world record for sorting 100 terabytes. You ready for this? In just 23 minutes, the team used Apache Spark on 207 EC2 virtual machines and sorted all 100 terabytes. Damn. Now, when they're sorting 100, like, is that sorting it in one gigabyte blocks or like, exactly, like, how are you sorting did they each? Sort? Like, yeah, well, well, saying you're sorting 100 terabytes doesn't necessarily tell you how much data you're actually sorting. Yeah, they have, you know, uh, you know what, how many keys were there? They have, right? There obviously weren't 100 billion billion keys so it's so though all they've really broken it down is is they said it was a 0.67 gigabytes uh per node or it depends i think and 1.4 terabytes a minute right but again it's, it's not really telling us no like were they how big were the records and how many records were there i guess is the most important we're looking question. Right now. yeah well i just i, I imagine they didn't say it's no i don't th- i don't see it uh Interesting, but I'm not sure how useful of a stat that really is. It's fun, though. That's why I read it because it's just that's why I put it at the top because like, yeah, oh, it was a fun it's stat. Interesting. Yep. Okay, Alan. So now something a little more interesting: some stick and rudder for your security bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, the Council on Cybersecurity has emphasized, uh, you know, five quick wins that any network can do to uh, increase their security. Okay. Uh, the first is application whitelisting. Uh, what that means is. Uh, you know, uh, Windows Active Directory has a feature for this. It's just off by default, and there's lots of other uh, third-party apps that manage lists for you, uh, making it easier than doing it yourself. Sure. But 
you know, if a machine needs to be really secure, then here's a list of programs you can run on it and nothing else can run. And it's the only way to make sure the malware is never going to run. Yep. Because, uh, you know, basically, uh, virus scanners and anti-malware is blacklisting, right? You're listing the things you don't want to allow. But new stuff is never going to be on the list. Whereas whitelist means only run these programs and nothing else. And they can get down to, like, you know, uh, you can uh, whitelist hashes of EXEs so that the only that only things that match this hash can run. But there are, uh, we've talked about one or two of the companies that uh, manage these whitelists, right? Because mm-hmm. one got hacked or something a while ago. But, <laughs> um, you know, that's definitely something you can do to prevent a Sony-style hack. Uh, use a standard secure system configuration. All your machines having uh, all the security. If you have security rules, they should be applied to every machine, and that will help a lot. Uh, important one, patch application software within 48 hours. I owe and patch system software within 48 hours. Now, I would say, yeah, patch system software within 48 hours. Maybe you can have a little more time for application, but it depends on the, what it means. But yes, installing patches now instead of not, right? If one-stop parking or whatever it was called had installed their uh, Joomla patch within 24 or 48 hours or even 48 days, yeah, gonna say. it would have been fine, yep. but they didn't, and so it wasn't fine. No. Nope. Um, Big one, though, reduce the number of users with administrative privileges, right? It's a lot harder for a yes, bad guy to do yes, privilege escalation right. if there are fewer places he can get privileges. Uh, they also have some interesting graphs like uh, top uh, threat action varieties from within Crimeware. So looking at over 2,000 bits of Crimeware, 86% of them uh, call home to a command and control server. So mm. look for that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 24% of them, they're not sure what they were doing. <laughs> But all other big ones are spyware keyloggers, downloaders that just download more spyware, uh, send spam, do client-side attacks, backdoor, denial servers, adware, or only 1% of them are actually stealing your data. Mm. Looking at the vectors, the how you get malware, uh, out of 337 cases, 43% were by drive-by downloading. So just some... Uh, Flaw in the browser or tricking the user to yeah. get them to download something. Probably could be. Uh, could that include maybe Flash and Java vulnerabilities? You think? Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So this web drive by and your IE flaws. by going to this site, <laughs> you get infected and you didn't even have to do anything. Yeah. Thirty-eight uh, percent are you downloaded something and ran it and you shouldn't have. Six uh, percent are through network propagation. Right. It gets. Uh, it's a worm and it spreads by going from computer to computer or whatever. Uh, only five percent actually come from email attachments. Uh, I guess that's because so many places block those and users are mostly finally realizing not to do it's that. It's interesting, though, how often it's cited as a, an attack vector, though. Yeah. Uh, well, the more important one is email link. I think phishing, people click on links more yeah. than 4% of the time. Yeah. It's just that only 4% of the ones they looked at require that as the way to get in. I think a lot more do actually do that, though. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, 2% of Crimeware got installed by downloading it. Uh, it got downloaded by other malware. So, right, if you get one of the very fancy ones is like stealing your bank account or something it probably didn't get there because you installed it it got there because some other piece of malware that you already had installed it on you or whatever only one percent comes from remote injection and about one percent comes from infected usb sticks and so on and other removable media uh as far as which data the crimeware is after looking at 37 percent of or sorry 37 different pieces of crimeware 82 percent of them were after your username and password for various things mm-hmm. or everything if they could yeah. honestly uh, 71% are after your bank account 14 after payments like credit cards 4% were after personal stuff 3% were after internal data from a company or 1% were after secret data from a company 
Uh, the important one is looking at the discovery timeline within Crimeware. Uh, so out of 1,000 infections of Crimeware, 32% uh, of them were found within seconds, 7% within minutes, 28% took hours, 22% took days, but 8% uh, took multiple weeks to find, and 4% uh, took months to find out that they were infected. Uh, and, you know, so as long if you can get keep those patches up within 48 hours, that means that you're down to, you know, you've just eliminated like 60% of all the, the malware from getting you. Hmm. How many times do we say it? But it's just so, it's so yeah. critical that you are on top of patching. It's Although uh, it's interesting looking at the top 10 most vulnerable programs based on number of patches, Yeah, uh, which isn't necessarily the best way to look at how vulnerable a program is. Uh, having a lot of patches uh, might actually mean that it's being, being less vulnerable. Yeah, they're issuing a lot of fixes all the time. But uh, looking at 2013, Firefox had 270, making it the most patched program of 2013. Chrome, 245. Oracle, Java, 181. Internet Explorer, 126. Adobe Reader, 67. Apple iTunes, 66. Adobe Flash Player, 56. So Adobe, not at the top of the list like you expect, Actually, down the list behind iTunes, even. Uh, Adobe Air, 51. Microsoft.net Framework, 18. Microsoft Word, 17. 17. Now, that's 2013. I bet 2014 looks a lot the same, though. Yep. Maybe maybe some differences in there. I don't know. Maybe Flash moves up. Who knows? Uh, but. but the other one they were showing here is uh, looking at the 28 hours. Uh, the first 28 hours where you're both public-facing and stuff in your DMZ. Uh, then the second 48 hours where you're both your user workstations and so on. Uh, the next, look at any third-party gateways and so on, stuff like that. And then after that, look at your general-purpose stuff like your ERP, email, and so on. And finally, your platform and test-sensitive systems. Uh, but make sure you have all your patches within 30 days. Very good. It's a nice one. And uh, there's nice pretty charts for those audio listeners if you want to go check the Roundup. Yeah, so uh, we covered that a little more depth than usually with a Roundup, but we just ran out of time for to be not a Roundup. Anyway. All right, uh, are you ready for my soapbox? Uh, that's yep. okay. Uh, this has got me all upset. I'm pretty worked up. Uh, CISPA 3.0 is on its way. It's being pushed by several different people. Obama's got his version. Uh, Dutch Ruppersberger has his version. Uh, you got to watch out for Dutch's because it's literally been written by the NSA. Uh, so it's reintroduced, and here's the best part. Uh, good old Dutch uh, reintroduced the exact same CISPA bill, word for word, that they introduced in 2013. The one that stalled out in the Senate. Never mind that the Senate has already refused to vote on that identical bill, but he figures now he's got a better shot. So, under CISPA, there's no warrants or subpoenas required for collecting and sharing personal data of the user systems as long as that falls under the actions as the broad label of national security. The data is siphoned off and disseminated to the government, and anyone that sends government that data that's collected, best part, that collection, exempt from the Freedom of Information Act. Can't find out what they actually got to take from you. The yep. bill only grants powers to share data when a cyber threat is imminent. So here's... Which is really an undefined... Here's what we get. The way we've been told, cyber threats are imminent all the time. This is one of these definitions that's so vague, it's, it's, it's great. Uh, cyber threat is identified as efforts to degrade, disrupt, or destroy such system or network. Also, theft or misappropriation of private or government information, intellectual property, intellectual property like movies, music, or personally identifiable information is all in there. And so if it's something that degrades a network or disrupts a network, that is defined as a national cyber threat, therefore allows them to basically have 
share all the information. You're indemnified from any legal action as part of CISPA, and it's completely stole. It's completely hidden away from the freedom of information request. It's pretty disgusting. ACLU has been pointing out recently that also the EFF just wrote a blog post about this. Uh, so I'd expect President Obama to talk about this more on Tuesday, State of the Union, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific, and we'll be streaming on Filter Live, commenting on any comments he makes about cybersecurity and CISPA during the State of the Union, because I think it's going to be a big part of his talk, and I'm I'm so pissed this is up again. Yeah. Uh, well, this is exactly what we said would happen, right? They, they saw the outrage. And so they're like, all right, we'll just table it for a little while and we'll reintroduce it. And people will just be so worn out about it, they're not going to get outraged this time. Well, and now they're saying, well, look, CENTCOM's Twitter account and YouTube page was attacked. That's a cyber and attack. Look, Sony nobody died. I know. Well, and they're still claiming Sony was and North Korea. CENTCOM and they're saying that's a cyber attack. Factor authentication. Obama is literally out there doing stump speeches saying, you know, in the wake of the Sony attack. You know, the things like it's just, it's, right. it's, that was an internal breach. Like, I, I, the, and why indemnify every every provider that shares information with the government and also exempt it from Freedom of Information Act? What 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 purpose does that serve? And on top of that, and this is then I'll get off the soapbox and then I'm done. But you have seen how the NSA has used any kind of nuance in the legal language to go whole hog on collection. Imagine what they could do with something like this. And that's why it's Dutch Rupersberger who's introducing it. I mean, it's, it's so obvious. I, if you don't follow politics, it's not obvious. But if you follow who these people work for and who they represent, it's obvious. Uh, and it, it's disgusting. And the fact that you got it coming from Obama and coming uh, for uh, there's several different proposals. It, uh, I'm really sorry to and see it. HR 234 is the one to watch. The Internet should not be allowed to be written by people that don't know how the Internet works. I agree. And also, you know, we've seen the same problem uh, tangentially in the the trial for the Silk Road Mount Gox stuff. It's like the the problem is that the jurors don't actually understand how the internet right. works in order to understand the the things that are at issue here. Yeah. And I'm not sure how the legal system really can deal with that. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's supposed to be a jury of your peers, but it's like at some point, how do we have a trial where the jury has to be people that that have certain technical knowledge. So, but how do you avoid that slanting the answer, right? This is exactly technical knowledge about the internet have certain feelings about how it should be done. This is exactly right. What you're talking about is what's happening in the Silk Road case, not just Mount Gox, but today or yesterday in the Silk Road case, it just started up. The judge said that the uh, explanation of how the Tor network works was technical mumbo jumbo. And they need to, they need to redo the whole explanation and that they have to start explaining things simpler to the jury because the jury isn't understanding Anything that they're talking yeah. about, exactly, and and so it's like I I don't know how to solve that issue. Uh, you know, you can't decide that the jury can only consist of people that that understand how Tor works. Uh, but at the same time, it's like how how is this trial going to have an outcome if none of the jurors understand how Tor works? Oh, it'll have just the outcome they want, I think. Uh, yeah. And see, we talk about how 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 devastating these cyber attacks are. The the biggest cyber attack on U.S. soil, right? The Sony one. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Sony was uh, assuring their shareholders, like, yeah. uh, even though we've done a lot of restructuring the last couple of years, and we, you know, it, it would look really bad if we didn't have a lot of money. Don't worry about the hack. We're not. It won't cost us anything. It's all insured. And now we see why they didn't patch their stuff because they didn't need to. 
because yeah. they figured, you know what, we could spend a couple million having staff work on this stuff for, for years with maybe no payoff. Or if we ever get bit, well, insurance will cover it. Now, the important question here is now, are the insurance companies going to be like, all right, well, we're going to have this minimum set of requirements you have to meet, otherwise your insurance will cost more, right? If you're not patching your stuff, you're a bigger risk, so your insurance premium goes up. Some experts have said that the cost is $100 million that they'll be collaborating. Like, how do you qualify the cost of how many people didn't go to see that movie because they watched it online because it leaked early? I don't know. And really, the number there is zero. So I wonder, so what's interesting about this? Uh, well, the biggest one is like, you know, we were talking about how it seemed to be in Sony's interest to make it a nation state that was hacking them so that, uh, you know, it couldn't possibly exactly. be their fault. Yep. Right. Because if this was internal negligence due to poor practices internally, how does that, that get covered? That, that's exact, you know, the insurance policy yeah. says, oh, well, well you if, were this, negligent. if you got hacked because you were being lazy, right. we don't cover that. Right. Oh, you were attacked by a nation state? Well... I mean, really, seriously, yeah. they, there yeah, are such things can. as, uh, this yeah. proves, cyber warfare insurance. And it's just unbelievable. And so who gets, who gets screwed? The, time, the customer gets screwed. every or the employees. insurance policy you can buy has a big clause oh, yeah. that exempts the insurance from having to cover acts of war. You know what would make my Friday is if tomorrow we saw a press release from Sony's insurance company saying they're not covering it. That would make yes. my Friday. Uh, oh, yes, specifically because it was an act of war from North Korea. And unless the government stops saying that it is, then they're not going to cover it. Yeah. That that would cause Sony to turn tail and and you know beg the government not to classify to keep saying that it right. was definitely North yeah, Korea. Yeah, stop that saying did that. It. Stop saying that. Then no, all of a sudden, some hackers in Brazil. Don't worry yeah. about it. it, wasn't, it we don't need to sanction North Korea, <laughs> right. So that we can have our hundred million dollars from our insurance company. Right. Oh. And meanwhile, it's the employees that get screwed, right? Because it's their yep. it's their social security and their identities, and of course they get free credit monitoring. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, CES wrapped up, and uh, there was some 4K displays. There was some interesting stuff, but uh, NPR reported on a survey conducted of people who attended CES. I thought this was very telling because I kind of feel the same exact way. According to a Fortune survey, more than 1,000 adults who they, they talked about concluded in collaboration with SurveyMonkey, so there was a couple of, so, and, and NPR is doing the reporting, so it's like three different people. Only 2% said they were extremely or very likely to buy internet-connected glasses, such, such as Google Glass in 2015, only 2%. And 4K televisions, 75% of respondents said they had never even heard of 4K, 75%. Meanwhile... I, I don't know who goes to CSS, uh, CES C- anymore other than reporters. Yeah, right. Uh, but, uh, meanwhile, here's what they did want. 33% said out of all the things they want out of CES, improved battery life. They don't want higher resolution. They don't want thinner. They don't want 4K. They don't want wearables. They want higher battery life. Yeah, I'm really not interested in wearable technology. You know, uh, I don't need the computer on me when I'm out and about so much. I do, but yes, batteries. Yeah, I feel like batteries. Who, who does? If you do a survey, would you like batteries to last longer? I'm sure you get 100% people agreeing that yes, I want my batteries to last longer. Yeah. Why is the battery tech just not happening though? Well, it's not necessarily all just the battery's fault, right? We can make the computers draw less power, right? We talked about this last week. Samsung's introducing new DDR4 RAM that uses half as much power as the old stuff. Right. That will make the battery last longer without having to change the battery. Right. I just wish we'd have some sort of battery. But also, when you say batteries last longer, there's two different angles to that. There's, you know, how much charge it holds or whatever. But also, you know, the battery on my cell phone doesn't hold the charge it used to. Right, mm-hmm. so maybe it's my battery lasts long enough when I buy the device, but 
two, two years, years later into the three-year contract, yeah. it's not holding the charge as much right. as it Same with well, laptops, too. I mean, mine's over three years now. But yes, actually, I can see that on my laptop. Uh, about a, two years into the life, I bought the booster battery that clips on the bottom, and it holds a lot more charge than the other one, even though they're identical nine-cell batteries. Hmm. There you go. You made mention of this next story earlier in the show today. Uh, Obama has a federal data breach notification bill. Uh, so this uh, is yeah. this is a notification within 30 days uh, stuff. Yeah, required. But they have a bunch of there's uh, so databreaches.net uh, has torn it apart and looked at a couple of things. Uh, mostly they're uh, they don't like the wiggliness of some of the language. Surprise. <laughs> they do like the fact that nonprofits were included. Uh, right. So they say um, the bill applies to business entities rather than individuals. Uh, which is any organization, corporation, trust, partnership, sole proprietorship, unincorporated association, or venture, whether or not it's established to make a profit. So nonprofits, if they leak data, uh, have to disclose it in 30 days, just the same as other stuff. And it gives the Federal Trade Commission the power to, to prosecute places that don't, and so on. However, the problems are how a security breach is defined, right? an unauthorized acquisition of sensitive personal identifiable information, or access to sensitive, personally identifiable information that is uh, for an unauthorized purpose or in excess of authorization and so on. Uh, but the big problem was um, the way they talked about uh, if you're using other people's data and stuff. And it basically, if you were using, um, so if you know how companies uh, like uh, magazines sell their subscriber lists and so on. Yeah. Well, if the if a company buys a subscriber list from a magazine and then they get hacked, they have to tell the magazine. They don't necessarily have to tell you under this law, hmm. uh, under certain reading, the way you read it. Well, and, can I uh, ask you the, this then? Would you think like if I was smart, say, well, so say, I mean, it seems like you could sort of just set up a, 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 another a company. in the middle to, to yeah. uh, uh, um, insulate yourself. Right. Yeah. And so it comes down to, uh, you know, Fixing the laws, uh, the wording, so that it's definitely um, make sure it covers everything. Uh, right now, it seems like just the way it's worded could lead to certain loopholes that we would like to see fixed before this gets passed. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, that uh, so who is required to notify? Is it in general, which is not a great way to write a law? Uh, <laughs> Any business entity engaged in or affecting interstate commerce that uses, accesses, transmits, stores, or disposes of, or collects sensitive, personally identifiable information for more than 10,000 individuals during any 12-month period hmm. shall, following the discovery of a security breach of such information, notify any individual whose sensitively, personally identifiable information has been or is reasonably believed to have been accessed or acquired unless there is no reason... Uh, no reasonable risk of harm or fraud to such individuals. Well, how? who gets to decide that there's no reasonable risk of harm or fraud? Right? I guess, and, they, I guess their own internal process, and then they just have, if it ever comes push to shove, they have to be able to But if my information it. gets taken, that's, that's the risk right there, right? Just because the person who stole it might not use it in a way that matters doesn't mean I shouldn't be notified of the breach, right? I would think so. Yeah, and uh, there's a couple other, yeah. So they, they tear apart the law and point out a bunch of the problems and uh, some of the stuff. Hmm, I mean, it's not amazing and great. Uh, yeah. The other big one is it has a, a preemption clause. So specifically, this is a federal law that would uh, st uh, stamp over top of 
uh, some states. state laws yeah. that are actually stronger. Yeah. So the Obama law would apply even though uh, the state law provides better protection. It would supersede those, and that it definitely is a problem. Yes, it's a... The provisions of this title shall supersede any provisions of the law of any state uh, or a political subdivision thereof relating to notification by a business entity engaged in interstate commerce of a security breach of computerized data, except as provided by a section where they Boy, have some exclusion to that. So uh, I can see why a business, yeah. especially a bigger one, mm-hmm. would rather have one law that applies to every state instead of different rules yes. for every state. Yes, absolutely. But at the same time, as someone who, if I lived in a state that had a nice strong law, I wouldn't like to have that law yep. overridden by a much weaker federal law. And and this final comment, I think, is the most damning part. Uh, comment. Businesses should be dancing in the streets by this bill. Consumers, not so much. Those consumers in states where this is currently no bre- where there's currently no breach notifications at all gain something. The rest of us are more likely to lose ground, with the exception of the 30-day timeline, but even that can be waived. Yep. There you go. And yeah, again, what's the point if it can be waived? Yeah, especially if it sounds like there's some easy ways to do it. Yep. Uh, okay, so tell me about this one, Alan. Uh, Panasonic Arbitrator Backend Server Uses Unencrypted Communications. The Panasonic Arbitrator Backend Server? Say it's not true. Yes. Uh, so yeah, this is just a, a U.S. CERT notification uh, talking about the... This bit of um, scatter type software apparently it uses uh, if you're using Arbiter Mark II VPU, which uses uh, USB Wi-Fi, direct LAN, embedded Wi-Fi, or direct LAN, uh, then uh, all the versions are vulnerable. Uh, Panasonic was notified November 18th and fixed it January 8th, mm. uh, and it's uh, got a. CVSS score of 5, which I think is the highest one, hmm. uh, a temporal score of 4.1, so it's urgent you do it, and an environmental score of 1.0, because most people don't have this thing. Uh, but, yeah, uh, so... Sounds like it's a vulnerability, though, that makes it... Just more embedded, uh, you know, stuff from companies yep. not known for software, yep. and it's like, yeah. And this one, you just have to be on the same land to get access to it, get the credentials. Uh, okay, so apparently uh, ISIS uh, busted out their bestest hacking and uh, hacked the uh, AKA password of a U.S. military Twitter account. Yeah, uh, more likely they probably fished it off somebody or something. Yeah, or they guessed like, it. <laughs> why is Cent- yes, it's entirely possible. Why is Sencom not doing two-factor authentication? Now, I can understand they probably have multiple people that run the Twitter account rather than just one person, and so two-factor can pose a problem. It seems like this is a problem Twitter should definitely solve mm. because there are a lot of businesses that do that, right? And there are apps like what, TweetDeck or whatever. Yeah, sure, or Hootsuite. Or, no, what's the Hootsuite, yes, yeah, Hootsuite. Um, that make it easier to deal with uh, multiple. You know, you see that often yep. on uh, corporate-type Twitter mm-hmm. accounts. You see the end of the tweet is like carrot and initials so they know which person sent which tweet. There's, uh, there's other systems well. too, like Slack has this built in for businesses. and there's Right, a- uh, but it definitely seems like uh, those types of things should have two-factor authentication for each user. Yeah. And definitely, you know, if you're a corporation, you don't want your Twitter account hacked, how about having strong passwords and using two-factor authentication? Oh, no, 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 no. You just said, I know what you do. Just pass this, but problem solved, problem solved. Uh, yeah. problem. Hey, Alan, uh, bad news about the Verizon cloud. <laughs> it's going to go offline for 48 hours. Like, well, this was uh, last week. What, what cloud? What Verizon? Is this, is this the network? Is this Verizon email? What's, what well, no, cloud? Th- this is their cloud, basically a competitor to like DigitalOcean okay. and Amazon AWS. Because they've got to get in everything, of course. They've yeah. got to be in every and, business. And they're like, yeah, we have to do some upgrades. 
and uh, so we're going to ter- uh, we're scheduling downtime for the entire weekend. We hope it'll only take about twenty four hours, but just in case, we've scheduled the entire weekend as downtime. So remember, uh, remember Shell Shock. Well, in October, Verizon took its systems down to patch the Shell Shock bug in the Zen hypervisor. Right. Uh, right. The outage uh, was expected to last twelve hours, but a lot of users were claiming it lasted thirty six hours. Yeah, and the other thing is. Uh, you know, most places that had to deal with the shell shock mode, they did a rolling reboot, right? Right. They reboot some of the hosts yes. and migrate stuff and reboot. And what reboot. an idea. And so the, instead of everything being off, Verizon had to take everything down in order to uh, be able to install it. They had to turn everything off at once, basically. Uh, <laughs> now, apparently, this most recent downtime this weekend was to upgrade their system so they didn't have to take the whole thing down every time they wanted to do an upgrade. Uh, who is... I'm trying to picture the conversation where you go... You know who designed the system in the first place to not be able to handle security updates? Who's buying this service from Verizon? Like, who yeah. thinks Verizon is the place to go to get this kind of thing? Like, how does that happen? Well, they're a big, they're a big backbone telco. Yeah, I guess. I mean, they're probably in sale and there's a whole package, I'm sure. I mean, yes, I just... and uh, they have a bunch of business services and stuff. This but, just seems yeah. like a bad idea to me. Ev- everybody should uh, uh, definitely consider not doing that. So uh, don't the police... If they have it? any customers left now, those, <laughs> they, they definitely have their hooks in those people. Well, they, yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, uh, this is super common in the U.S. where uh, carriers are famous for charging uh, law enforcement agencies for tracking cell phones. And I guess the Mounties... Well, it makes uh, sense uh, because, honestly, the telco, it costs them money. And I just like the idea of the it keeps the police from doing it more than they need to because yes. they have to budget for it. Exactly. Uh, but Not the Rogers, which is a big telco uh, here in Canada, and uh, they started. They they sent a note to the police, being like, "Hey, after I think it was August, we're going to start sending you bills for this." And they're like, "No, <laughs> of course they don't uh, want to get billed." Apparently, the uh, the court decided that uh, as long as the costs were reasonable, which was apparently classified as like eight hundred thousand dollars a year or some ridiculously high number. It. <laughs> my biggest problem with that is is what about somebody trying to start a smaller telco yeah. where $800,000 is literally impossible. Yeah. You know, in the case of something like Ting, uh, because they're reselling Sprint or whatever, it'd be Sprint that would have to deal with it and Ting would be isolated, but uh, um, insulated from it. But, you know, it's, I just don't like this idea of... Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't want the telcos to be making money off of it, but I do want the police not to be doing it any more than they need to. At same right. Time. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't want it to become so profitable that they are incentivized to do it for exactly. telcos. Yeah. But you don't want it to be so cheap that the police can just have at it. Yeah. So, uh, okay. I love this chart that you found on Twitter and uh, tossed in the roundup. The path from beginner to expert. Mm-hmm. The I know nothing phase, then the I, I'm an expert phase, and then the I know nothing phase where you're really an expert. <laughs> Yes, uh, the the great one is that they just uh, label that middle one as the... So, you, yeah, you start at knowing nothing and knowing that you know nothing, and then you start learning things. Uh, but you also uh, start thinking you know more than you do, and it, that's when you decide that you're an expert, and that's when you become a hazard. Yeah. And then later, eventually, you may become a real expert, and you go back to saying, I don't know anything, uh, and uh, that's when you're actually an expert. This is so freaking true. This is so true. This is great. We have a link in the roundup. You guys, if you're listening on the audio version, you should check this out. This is so great. Uh, I love it. Because you, you know what you really realize is the more you learn, like when I think about now, uh, if I knew what I knew now, 
I would never have started video production. I, I wouldn't do it. I would never get into this. But because I didn't know any better at the time, I thought I had it all figured out. What did I know? So I went and launched and did it bit by bit by bit over time. But now I know there's so much more that I don't know. And now it's just so overwhelming I would never do it. <laughs> you know, well, Honestly, if, if I knew what I know now a couple of months ago, I would have sold all my Canadian dollars. I would have spent all my Canadian dollars buying U.S. dollars so I could <laughs> sell them back now and make 20% profit. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah, there's that one too. Uh I actually have a bit of a win. Not really related at all. Sell orders against oil. For <laughs> but, uh, you know, Bitcoin crashed bad yesterday. Yeah. You know, and I think it's like it's recovered right now. Um, yeah. Let me see. Last I checked, it was 200 something. Yeah, I'm going to. I'm go- I, I've been using Bitcoin average. I like Bitcoin average right a bit because. I've, I've been looking at the Canadian exchange. It's the only one I can oh, sure. about. All right. So Bitcoin average, current Bitcoin price, $213. It's up uh, 21% today after a crash yesterday. But I, a few days ago, uh, late last week, I bought a new laptop with Bitcoin just in time. So I just, I just avoided now, the-, the person who sold that laptop got screwed. <laughs> well, well unless they were using something like Stripe. Yeah, I think, I think they're using Coinbase. I think they're using Coinbase, and they just, they just flipped it immediately because it was Dell. Uh, all right, all right, Dell Alan. Accepts Bitcoins, or you bought it some? No, Dell else. straight up accepts Bitcoin for anything in the Dell store. Oh. Yeah, any. I got an adapter. As long as they're actually getting the US. Yeah, I, w- I couldn't. I was like, I was on the fence about this new. So they have this new sweet ass XPS 13 touchscreen laptop, edge to edge display, fits in an 11 inch thing. It's super nice. And I'm right. like, I looked at it the other day. And I was thinking, I was Why thinking, was I looking at it. It's because it's nice. Oh, rate. it has the new Broadwell. Yes. Everything, right? Yes. And so I was thinking, oh, I kind of want to get that. And then I saw accepts Bitcoin. And I'm thinking to myself, Bitcoin's been going down in price. Now's the time. Man, was that a good call? <laughs> Man. So, uh, all right, it's, it pays to watch Bitcoin even even just a little bit. Uh, I, I, I love that you found this story because we've actually, I don't know if you remember, we've actually speculated about this on the show before. Our last well, story in the roundup. I one about the Mac with the battery, but this one's a little different. This one, well, uh, I, I, I actually, well, it was me that speculated okay. that, that I thought that this would be possible with a Thunderbolt device like this. So, uh, Ars Technica is covering the world's first known boot kit for OS X that can permanently backdoor the Mac. It's called Thunderstrike, and it allows even even somebody with a brief access to get the malware onto the system. Uh, yeah, so because Thunderbolt provides direct memory access, you can just basically yeah. write to the memory of another program or another uh, or the BIOS in this case. It's uh, these Thunderbolt uh, devices are PCI Express devices externally. They're on the PCI Express bus. Yep. So they get. I mean, they get read the memory. Same with FireWire, by the way. Same with FireWire. And, uh, yes, that was why FireWire was. Uh, uh, developers loved it for doubling operating systems because yeah. you could debug and do direct memory access over it. Uh, and I mean, there's really, I mean, how do you get around this when something's a PCI? It's you put it if if you're installing a PCI Express device in your machine, right? And the thing is, is I'm a big Thunderbolt fan. I think Thunderbolt is the best external connectivity option out there, better than USB 3.0 right, by a it's mile. Equivalent in speed to plugging something into the PCI Express bus, which is badass. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and it's great for like it's Ethernet kind of adapters like e-data. too. Yeah, well, it's or you know when you hook up a gigabit Ethernet adapter, it's a PCI Express gigabit Ethernet adapter. When you hook up a display yeah. adapter, it's right on the it's it's on the bus. It's it's a nice feature, but it definitely I mean physical access is always critical. But the problem with this particular one is that it's on every MacBook shipping. Okay, so that means a lot of devices in a lot of places that might not have good physical security. So it is a serious consideration if. And the way they did it in this one is they put uh, the ROM, the Thunderstrike ROM, on a Thunderbolt device. So they put that ROM on there, and then when you plug it in, it just does the work. You just connect the device. 
Uh, pretty crazy. Uh, and they replace Apple's RSA key with the one on the boot ROM. So when the Mac checks, it's got the right key. Yeah. So basically, uh, normally Apple uh, checks the, the uh, signature on the boot ROM to make sure it's a valid Apple one and otherwise doesn't boot. Because of direct memory access, they're able to overwrite the uh, location of Apple's RSA key with their own key so that the signature will check out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, you can. It's basically uh, overwriting an option ROM, so it's similar to uh, old BIOS type uh, ones where you would just re- actually overwrite the, the BIOS with a malware version of the BIOS that would always reinfect the boot sector or whatever. And uh, similar to the ones the NSA was doing, right? Where, you know, it would infect the machine via the BIOS, so it would take over your Linux install or whatever. And even if you reformat and install Linux fresh, it would reinfect it right away. Yeah, I'm reading the chat room's comments I too heard about some uh, stories about uh, some that Linux. It was interesting. Ah, uh, boy. <laughs> hey, Alan, you know what next week is? Episode 200 Eve. Uh, the Eve. No, it's not. <laughs> the Eve of two isn't. Oh no, it's not an episode. Next week's 198, isn't it? I got ahead of myself. Well, then that's good. That gives folks two more weeks to come watch us live while we're still sub 200. Why not get it in before we cross the 200 threshold? You can be one of them, jblife.tv. We do the show Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? Uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 UTC. Boom. com slash calendar to get that converted automatically. We'd like your feedback. It's a huge part of our show. It's really important that we can, and, and the other great thing is, is if you've got the question, there's a really good chance somebody else has the same question. And it's really important to us that we help people in the community get this stuff solved and get better use out of their technology. We are your free consultants, so take advantage of us. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact. Send your question into the TechSnap program. Also, that subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Go over there and submit stories for the roundup, and uh, feedback is also welcome. Alan, is there anything else we need to cover today before we get out of here? Nope, we should be good to go. Okay. Uh, oh, uh, maybe one more plug. Episode 200, emails too. We want those as yes, well. emails. Send now. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, I'm getting scared. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>